When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends. I'm Jared Halverson. This is Unshaken, and I hope you're having a marvelous day. Mine's been awesome so far. I got to spend all morning teaching the Book of Mormon to my students at BYU, and now I get to spend the afternoon teaching the New Testament to all of you. And I can't think of a better day uh, or better way to spend the day than bouncing back and forth between books of Scripture. Uh, it can be a little confusing at times. Uh, am I in Zarahemla or in Jerusalem right now? But I think the pros outweigh the cons because it gives you a chance to cross-pollinate and look across the canon of Scripture and start drawing connections and seeing parallels and adding a few footnotes of your own. If you are loving your time in the Gospels so far, but at the same time maybe you're missing Moroni, uh, or wondering what Nephi's been up to lately, or just wishing that you could spend a little more time hanging out with Alma and Amulek, then feel free to, to jump around the canon as well. And you too will start to see some interesting connections as the Lord teaches similar principles across the dispensations. Uh, he, that, that shouldn't surprise us. He loves all of his children and wants to make sure that we all know the same kinds of truths. Now, the truths we'll be talking about today are amazing. We will be covering two more miracles. Uh, we, we spent all of last week talking about miracles. I hope you enjoyed that lesson, and if you didn't get a chance to get through it all, maybe you enduring the entire lesson was the miracle for you. But if you didn't, if you weren't able to, I would go back and at least spend some time at the end with that incredible woman that came to wash the Savior's feet with her tears. Uh, the other miracles are equally moving, the healing of the leper and the, the raising of this man that was lowered down through the roof. The raising of the, the son of the widow of Nain, or the calming of the sea, or the calming of the stormy soul of the man with the legion of devils. Uh, healing Peter's mother-in-law. We, we covered so many incredible stories last week. And the two remaining miracles in Matthew's compilation, remember he likes to organize things, and so Matthew 8, which was last week, and some of 9, we'll finish the rest of 9 today. There are two other miracles that he gives. Well, two major miracles. And major miracles is such a redundancy. Any miracle is major. There's no such thing as a minor one. But as far as the amount of time and text that our authors give to us, uh, or give to these miracles, the two that we'll study today are the, the raising of the daughter of Jairus and the healing of the woman with the issue of blood. And you have to study those two stories together because they are interwoven in all of the accounts of them that we have. Matthew talks about it. Mark talks about it. Luke talks about it. Everybody wants to weigh on, on this pair of miracles, and they really come as a pair. You can't study one without the other. And so we'll, we'll tackle that the first half of our lesson. And then the second half, we'll be spending our time with the apostles. As, as Jesus calls apostles from among his disciples and begins to send them forth, to see the commission of this original Quorum of the Twelve is a fascinating part of what we'll study this week as well. So I'm looking forward to it. Now, before I jump in, though, can I make a, a quick advertisement on behalf of the church? Uh, this is meant for any of you young single adults that happen to be men, uh, single guys between the ages of 19 and 30. The church needs your help. 
uh, because the, they are in need of more counselors for this summer's FSY programs. I'm not sure when you're watching this. I'm filming it right now at near the end of February of 2023. And summer of 2023, the church will be putting on countless FSYs across the United States, uh, where at college campuses, coast to coast, youth in the church will be coming together to have the time of their lives and learn that living the gospel can be a blast. It's not just the best way to live, it's the funnest way to live as well. And so FSY, For the Strength of Youth, is what EFY, it, it's not, it's what EFY was. And EFY, especially for youth, was life-changing for the youth that were able to participate in it. In fact, it was so life-changing that the church wanted every youth to have this opportunity. And so converting EFY into FSY, practically eliminating out-of-pocket expenses for the people who participate, uh, with the church covering most of that, picking up most of that tab, so that youth across the kingdom can come together and have a blast with each other, uh, learn the gospel with their peers, and realize that, that they can have fun and combine it with faith all at the same time. Uh, they're, they're, the sisters have stepped up already. There are currently enough uh, female counselors uh, and that's, what, that's the beauty of this program. You're blessing the youth, but they're using young single adults to bless the youth. So talk about a win-win. Uh, for me, when I got home from my mission, what saved me as a return missionary was teaching at the MTC. I felt like I could still be in the game. Uh, I, I was still part of the Lord's work, and, and watching it unfold was a, an amazing experience to help me keep my mission momentum. Well, if teaching at the MTC isn't an option for you, being a counselor at FSY is. And so for you return missionaries especially, and for you moms and dads out there, or uncles and aunts, or grandmas and grandpas, if you have a, a son, or a little brother, or a, a nephew, we need more men to be able to step up and become counselors. And you will become a hero in the eyes of the youth that you help supervise. They will see you as a big brother, as a mentor, as someone they want to be like, because you're fun, and funny, and spiritual, and grounded, and good. And that's exactly what, what this rising generation needs to see uh, so that they can become those things themselves. So yeah, that's, the, that's, that's my commercial for you. Okay? The, the church reached out to, several, to many of us and asked if any of you can, can help engage your audience, uh, your, your friends and family that you're teaching scripture with, uh, let them know of this opportunity. And you young men out there, jump on it. It'll be a life-changing experience, I assure you. Now, life-changing experiences is what the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about. And as we turn back to the stories in Matthew, Mark, and Luke this, way, this week, we will see lives being changed. And the ministry of Christ beginning to pick up even more speed and then begin to spread out through the ministries of the apostles. That's why they're needed. Jesus can't do it all himself. And so notice, if you will, uh, that what happens right in the beginning of Luke chapter 8. We finished last week at the end of Luke 7 with this woman that comes in to wash the Savior's feet. As soon as that story's done and you turn the page, chapter 8 verse 1 begins, it came to pass afterward that he went throughout every city and village, preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. Now, they won't always be with him. They'll be out serving on their own, two by two as well. But for this, to watch from their master, this is what the good news of the kingdom looks like. Not just what it sounds like. They're not just preaching it. Notice Jesus was preaching the glad tidings, but he was also showing the glad tidings. It's not just extra, extra, read all about it. It's come and see. And I will show you what the good news looks like. Glad tidings and good news is the same thing. And remember the, the old English word 
gospel. That means good news. Jesus is not just teaching it. He is that news. And if we'll just watch his ministry unfold, then that's the extra extra. That is headline news. When I was young, uh, I started when I was, I think, in what fourth grade, something like that, and then went all the way, eh, fifth grade maybe. But anyway, all the way through junior high and high school, I was a paper boy. Now, I didn't want to admit that to anybody. I couldn't get a job after school because I had football practice and then homework and everything else. And so it had to be, the only time I could work was in the wee hours of the morning before early morning seminary. So paper boy it was for me. And for seven years, it was delivering newspapers. And it's fine when you're little, but when you're in high school, you don't want to tell the girls that you're a paper boy. So me, when they asked me what I did for my job, I spruced it up a little bit. I would tell them, oh, I'm a communications distribution specialist. And then I would hope they wouldn't ask what they meant. Uh, I distributed communications. I threw newspapers. Well, here, what we're seeing at the beginning of Luke 8, Jesus and his apostles are the ultimate communications distribution specialists. And they specialize in making sure that the world knows the good news, the glad tidings of great joy that shall be to all people. And what I love about what we're seeing so far about this news, this is a preview of what the kingdom of God will look like. Because the king of kings is coming among us. And what does he do? What news does he leave in his wake? Lepers healed, and dead raised, storms calmed, devils cast out, sinners forgiven, publicans called as apostles. This is what life in the kingdom of God looks like. I am showing it to you. So if you want to be a part of this, then come and see, and then go and share. In the next verses, verse 2 and 3, we realize that it's not just a bunch of men that are following Jesus around, but there are women also. And not just any old women. Certain women, which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. And then he lists a few. Mary, called Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils. And Joanna, the wife of Husa, Herod's steward. And Susanna, and many others, which ministered unto him of their substance. So often we picture Jesus's followers as having nothing, uh, the poor and the marginalized, and many of them were. Remember, Jesus had to fill the apostles, the fishermen's nets, so they'd have something to sacrifice as they came and followed him. Matthew the publican would have had more to leave behind at his seat of, of, at the receipt of custom. But to think of these women, they had a lot to leave behind. They had a lot to offer, some by way of influence and others by way of affluence. When we meet Susanna, it speaks of her ministering unto him of her substance. So, giving to help finance the ministry. If Jesus says it has no hole uh, to, to lay his head, no nest to, to nest up in. Imagine these good, kind-hearted sisters that are providing whatever they can. And by way of, that's, if that's affluence, what of influence? Think of Joanna. Her husband is... Within the power circles there in, in Herod's palace. And so to have a Christian's ear in those, in those places of influence would be a helpful thing for the spreading movement. Uh, to think of Mary Magdalene 
and all we get here about her is the fact that out of her went seven devils. I love her portrayal in The Chosen, though The Chosen does take several poetic licenses, uh, as, as you would expect. They get much more specific about what some of those devils may have been for Mary Magdalene. And that goes beyond what we see in Scripture. We don't know anything specific about what she was dealing with. We don't even know if seven was a literal or symbolic number. If it's symbolic, then think of that totality and that completeness. Imagine a life that was completely just overwhelmed with the demons that she was wrestling with, whatever they may have entailed. And if you or I have ever felt like we needed to be healed of seven devils, then Mary Magdalene becomes an amazing example of one who is willing to have all of those burdens lifted as she comes and follows the Savior throughout his ministry. She will play such an important part. And so I'm grateful that we are introduced to her today at the beginning of today's lesson, where by the end we will have a handle on the apostles. And so female, male, in some ways, Jesus was so far ahead of his time in terms of empowering people that had so little social power. The, whether that's women, whether that's outsiders and outcasts, the marginalized, non-Israelites. I've often said that, that, that Christian history is a long and painful process of trying to catch back up to Jesus. And when it comes to gender issues, racial issues, Jesus, like I said, is so far ahead of his time. We're, we're still trying to catch up. I do love, though, at the beginning there, uh, and I have Sister Kent, Linda K. Burton to thank for this, former Relief Society General President. President Burton pointed out the phrase at the beginning of that verse, and certain women. Now, this doesn't work in the Greek original, but does it, it does work in English translation. That certain women can just mean, oh yeah, just some women out there. I don't know who they were. Or... Certain, rather than, oh, just random, it can be certain as in sure. These were certain women. This is like the mothers of the stripling warriors. We do not doubt that our mothers knew it. And there was no reason to doubt the testimony and faith and covenant commitment of these amazing women, so many of whom are left unnamed, which makes the names of Mary and Susanna and Joanna all the more treasured. These are sister saints worth remembering. Now, later in this chapter, Jesus is going to, this is chapter 8 of Luke, he's going to begin teaching parables. We'll get to that in a few weeks when we catch up to them in Matthew. We'll see him crossing the sea and calming the storm and casting out the legion of devils, all those stories that we saw last week. So again, the order, the chronology is going to be different in these three synoptic gospels. But then Jesus gets to the other side. After casting out the legion, he gets back in the boat, crosses to get back to Capernaum. And this is where the next set of stories will unfold. You'll see this in Luke chapter 8, verse 40. It came to pass that when Jesus was returned, the people gladly received him, for they were all waiting for him. Can you picture them just there at the seaside, wondering how long will it be till Jesus comes back? Gladly receiving him, waiting with eager anticipation. Does that describe us? In terms of the second coming, are we waiting? Will we gladly receive him? Will they do? And one particular person more than most.
For this, we're going to go to the Mark account, because although Matthew, Mark, and Luke all talk about Jairus and his daughter, the Mark account is the most dramatic of them all. So we'll start there and then get some insight from Matthew and Luke when we get a chance. Mark chapter 5 is is where you'll find it, and we begin in verse 21. And when Jesus was passed over again by ship unto the other side, so again, he's returned from from casting out the, the demons, much people gathered unto him. And we should be used to that by now. There are always crowds clamoring for Christ's attention. Well, he was nigh unto the sea, so he's barely gotten off the boat, okay? And he's already being mobbed by people that want to be near him. Much people nigh unto the sea. Are we setting the stage here? And behold, there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet. Now Matthew says he worshipped him. And that's an important thing to realize also. After all, Jairus is a religious man. So worship would be kind of what is, what he's, how he's wired. And yet to fall at someone else's feet, he's the ruler of the synagogue. He's used to being the lofty, and now he's choosing to be the lowly. Why? Because he knows that the person in front of him rules more than synagogues. He is one that can cleanse temples. In fact, he's one that can create worlds. And so to recognize in Jesus someone far superior to whatever level Jairus had, had achieved himself, Now, what I want us to do, I mentioned The Chosen before, and uh, I love love that show. It it dramatizes the ministry of Jesus so beautifully. But yes, there are uh, creative licenses being taken. What I want us to do is imagine if you were filming this, uh, if you were at least watching it play out in your mind, then what details would you bring? And for this, I want to be as close to the text as we possibly can be. Because if we are careful readers of the scriptures, they provide most of the show notes that we need, most of the director's cues, and the things you put over on the side of the script of this is how we need to portray this. So uh, unlike most where it seems like they're there in the city somewhere, this seems to be very near the, the seaside because Jesus has just left the boat, okay, nigh unto the sea. Here comes this man falling at Jesus' feet. And according to verse 23, still in Mark 5, he besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her, that she may be healed, and she shall live. Now, again, he's on his knees. I pray thee. This is a worshipful position. And he is beseeching Jesus, knowing there's nowhere else for him to turn to seek him, his, his help in blessing his little daughter. Little daughter. Now notice, she's at the point of death in the Mark account. Whereas in the Matthew account, she's already gone. In Matthew's version, this is chapter 9, verse 18, he says, My daughter is even now dead, but come and lay thy hand upon her, and she shall live. Now even now dead, is he just... Is he dramatizing this? Is he just trying to make, it, make sure Jesus understands just what a 911 situation this is? That every second is of the essence? You've got to come as quickly as... Otherwise, right now she's dead. For all I know, if when I left, it was the Mark version, she's at the point 
But now that I've had to muscle my way through the crowds to find you here at the seashore, for all I know, she's dead. She's gone now. My poor wife back at home, wondering, probably wondering what's taking me so long. Please come and help her. But go back to the way he said it. Whether she's at the point of death or has just crossed that point, what is the evidence of his faith? Jesus, please come, lay thy hands on her, and she shall live. Even after saying she's already gone, he still says she shall live. This is his version of what we saw last week from this incredible leper. Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. I know that. The only thing I wonder about is thy will. I'm not questioning your power. Will you do this? The story picks up in verse 24. And Jesus went with him, and much people followed him and thronged him as usual. I wonder, is this crowd gathering and wanting to be with Jesus because they're curious onlookers? Or are these true people of faith? Are these, is this curiosity or is this discipleship? People who already know of Jesus and simply want to be with him. Or people that are hoping to catch a glimpse of the next great thing. It's hard to tell. And we will see later in today's lesson some of the difference that, that our attitude makes in terms of whether or not Jesus will perform a miracle and whether or not we get to be a part of it. Now, in this case, don't worry about the specifics about the multitude. Just realize that they're there, much to the consternation of Jairus. Remember, for him, this is a 911 call. And the last thing you want when your, when your ambulance is trying to get to the hospital is traffic. Picture the, the lights blaring, or the lights the flashing and the siren blaring, and please get out of the intersections so I can get there. It would have been so frustrating for a very impatient and urgent Jairus. I'm surprised that he's able to hold back from pushing Jesus forward, of just clearing the way. He's the ruler of the synagogue. Can't he pull some strings, get some, some muscle out there to clear the way so that Jesus can make a beeline straight to his house? That's no doubt what Jairus is feeling. With every second passing, inching his precious daughter closer and closer to the grave. But it's in that moment that as directors, we have to pan the camera from the look of urgency and worry on the part of this father to a look of hope mingled with fear, mingled with desperation on the face of a woman with an issue of blood. The daughter of Jairus, this young woman, and this woman with the issue of blood, we don't know her age, but some older than this little girl. These two sister saints, their stories are woven together to the point that we cannot read one without reading the other. In fact, the story of Jairus is interrupted by this woman, and that's important because the last thing Jairus would want is interruptions. There's no time to help anyone else along the way we have to get to my daughter. But no. Now for this, as we shift our gaze to this suffering woman, we're going to spend most of our time with Mark and Luke because I'm shocked at how sparse Matthew's account is. 
so many important details that he chooses not to give us. In fact, I'll read the entirety of Matthew's account. It's just these three verses, Matthew 9, 20 to 22. And if you know the story already, see what he's missing. And behold, a woman which was diseased with an issue of blood 12 years came behind him and touched the hem of his garment. For she said within herself, If I may but touch his garment, I shall be whole. But Jesus turned him about, and when he saw her, he said, Daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. And the woman was made whole from that hour. And that's the sum total of what we get from Matthew. She is another equivalent of the leper as far as a, an affirmation of her faith. I know he will heal me if I can but get close enough to touch. Not even touch him, just touch the hem of his garment. That's all I need. But that kind of physical contact will, give, will bring the physical healing that I have been waiting for for 12 years. Now, remember what we'll see in other accounts. Jesus stopping, looking around, wondering who touched him. None of that drama takes place in the Matthew version. It's simply that she comes and touches and Jesus says, well, well done. Thy faith hath made thee whole. Be of good comfort. But you do start to get at least a few hints of what's going on in her heart with the little detail that she came behind him. Okay, why? Why would she not want to come out boldly, facing him, ex expressing to him her faith, her desire? It seems like so many people so far have approached him much more directly. Even the leper did, having to brave the multitude in the process, but coming to Jesus knowing he was the only hope that he had. You have the centurion sending servants but directly coming to Jesus, please help. We just saw Jairus do the same thing. And yet her coming behind. And I think sometimes that's how we feel about ourselves, that Jesus wouldn't have time for me. He wouldn't recognize me in a the crowd. There's, I wouldn't have the courage to come and try to stop him, to go up and, and speak. I think sometimes we are so... I don't know, we feel about ourselves in a certain way as and compared to the way we feel about someone else. And who am I? Why would they, would they even give me the time of day? And the closest we can come is to sneak up behind someone, hoping just to brush up against the hem of their garment. Now, it might not just be a low self-esteem on her part. In some ways, society had given her just that. Because if you have an issue of blood as a woman, well, actually as anyone, an issue of blood makes you ceremonially, ritually impure and unclean. And you are not supposed to be around other people if you have an issue of blood. Uh, President Nelson, well, a.k.a. Dr. Russell M. Nelson, years ago, actually commented on this and pointed out from a medical perspective that this was a very inspired portion of the law of Moses. Because it wasn't just ritual impurity. This was good hygiene. That if you're bleeding, what does the law of Moses say you're supposed to do? You're supposed to wash the wound. Mm, that would be helpful. You're supposed to separate yourself from, uh, from, from other people. 
we just went through a, a COVID pandemic. And what were we constantly doing? Washing our hands, uh, maintaining social distance, quarantining ourselves. Little did we know we were living the law of Moses. And the way Dr. Nelson said it, if people had understood that, that God knows more about just, than just about religion, he knows about the body since he created it, and he's giving the ancients an understanding that far precedes germ theory and understanding contamination and so on. Dr. Nelson even said, if doctors or if people had just followed that advice throughout human history, countless lives would have been saved. Instead of performing surgery after surgery after surgery in the same location, on the same bloody sheets, they would have known <laughs> that anything that has the blood of someone else on it should be avoided by everyone else. They would have understood that washing hands and washing wounds is absolutely essential, lest you spread germs. As far as the Jews were concerned, they wouldn't have understood germs. But they did understand ritual impurity and purity. Fine. The Lord can use that. And so he did. Now, mo for the most part, that's excellent hygiene. It's going to save lives. It's going to allow people to heal and then return in a way that doesn't contaminate one another. But what if you have a wound that never heals? What if you have an issue of blood that never seems to go away permanently? Since this is a woman, it's likely that it had something to do with her menstrual cycle. In fact, in the ancient world, in ancient Israel, women were ritually impure because of menstruation for a certain period each month. But to have that, to have your impurity never interrupted by purity, to be quarantined and never to be able to come out of quarantine, social distancing to an extreme, to the point that you are cut off from society. And that's this woman. No wonder she is coming behind him. I can't let him know because my touch would be contaminating to him. We talk about social lepers in our day and have leper colonies and distancing people that we can't be touched by. Remember Jesus touches the leper? He's not a high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmity. This woman is the female equivalent of the male leper we saw because her issue of blood might as well have been leprosy for her. And yet even there, there's no colony for her to congregate with. She's cut off. Spiritually, probably wondering, where is God in all of this? She is cut off socially. Everyone I touch... It's the opposite of the Midas touch. Everyone I touch becomes as unclean as I. I'm sure she's cut off mentally and emotionally since it's been 12 years that she's been suffering this affliction. If we can just pause here, even in this sparse Matthew account, and try to understand what this poor woman has been dealing with, then we might be prepared to follow her through the crowd as she tries to come unto Christ. For that, go with me to Matthew 5, and notice the details he includes that Matthew did not. He begins in verse 25, and a certain woman, 
There's that phrase again. Thank you, President Burton. Certain about what? Certain about her suffering. Certain that no one else can help, but certain that Jesus can do something for her. This certain woman, which had an issue of blood 12 years, same detail we saw in Matthew, but then notice the difference, and had suffered many things of many physicians, and had spent all she had, Luke even adds, she had spent all her living, so not only all that she had, but all she was continuing to make, every part of her was going towards any kind of solution she could imagine. And yet, she was nothing bettered, but rather grew worse. Now, imagine emotionally what she's dealing with, physically what she's enduring. She's suffered many things of many physicians. I do wonder what Luke feels about this, since he is a physician by trade. But if anyone would have known the limits of that professional knowledge, it would be he. Through so much of human history, physicians couldn't do much, and they had quote-unquote cures that were often worse than the disease. Bleeding their patients, or, or leeches, or some strange concoction. Through much of history, the hospital was not a place you went to get better. It was a place you went to get worse. Because you'd go with one disease and you'd pick up something else from doctors that didn't know their law of Moses. These, I'm sure these were well-meaning physicians, wishing they could help and giving it a try. But time after time after time, they come up empty-handed. And I'm sure apologizing, wishing they could do more for her, but she realizes, no one can do anything for me. I have used up all that I have. I've spent all my living, every time I make a shekel, I'm looking for someone with the next promise of a miracle cure. Well, now I just need a miracle. And the kind that no amount of money could ever buy. Because I'm not getting better. In fact, I'm getting worse. Whether that was caused by some of the so-called solutions of these physicians, or whether that was simply a continuing deterioration of her body and a worsening of the disease that was afflicting her. Either way, she's getting worse. And if that's true physically, I'm sure it's even more true mentally and emotionally. Chronic illness almost invariably brings on some kind of mental or emotional disease, distress, anxiety, deep, dark depression, wondering, will I ever get better? Will things ever change? And to get your hopes up and then dashed and up and dashed every time you meet a new physician, I can't imagine what she's feeling in her mind and in her heart, let alone in her body. And yet, this certain woman, like so many others that we have studied so far, is hoping against hope. And so in the next verse, when she had heard of Jesus, and that's all it's been so far. She's never met him, uh, as far as we can tell. I don't know if she's ever seen him, at least not face to face. She's the type that's going to come around from behind. But when she hears of him, 
the glad tidings that are being shown of the kingdom of God, what does she do? She comes in the press behind. There's that idea behind again, but another focus on the press, the crowd. And so, yes, she has to press her way through. She is touching people and hoping that no one knows who's touching them. She comes in the press behind. She touches his garment. For she said, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. That's all. If I can just get that close. Now, in Luke's account, rather than just saying touched his garment, his phrase is touched the border of his garment. Back to Matthew, it's that hem. But is it just a hem? That's one way to translate it. But this word for border can also be translated corner or edge or get this, tassel or fringe. It may not just be the edge of his coat. This could be the tassel or fringe on his prayer shawl. And in some ways, that symbolism is so powerful in this circumstance. If you remember back to the Law of Moses, that would have uh, given them some good hygiene options. It was also a good reminder of the covenants they'd made with God and the importance of keeping those covenants themselves. Uh, there is still ritual clothing that people of many faiths wear so that every time they get dressed, they are reminded of their relationship with God. That's the case with these prayer shawls in ancient Israel. And so if you go back to the book of Numbers, chapter 15, notice 38 and 39, where the Lord says, Speak unto the children of Israel and bid them that they make them fringes in the borders of their garments throughout their generations. So do this throughout time, and they're still doing it in Jesus' day. They're still doing it in our own I actually love seeing practicing Jews that you can visibly see the tokens of their covenants. It's a beautiful thing. And so Jesus would have been wearing something like this. The verse goes on to explain why they were to put these fringes in the borders of their garments. It says, it shall be unto you for a fringe that ye may look upon it. I want this to be visible so it reminds you constantly. And reminds you of what? Here it is. Remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them. We hear of people sometimes, or at least in the old days before our cell phones would remind us of everything we tend to forget. They would tie a string around their finger. Well, imagine wearing the string everywhere you go, having a fringe on the corners of your clothing as a constant reminder to keep the commandments of God. Now, in Jesus' case, he would have needed no reminder. He kept them all to perfection. But imagine the symbolism of this moment where this woman, this certain woman, so full of faith that she had to extend her arms to give it more room. And as she reached out, the very limits of her, her hope, her faith, her desire, her fingers brushed up against the fringe of Jesus' garment. Her faith came in contact with his perfect obedience. And in the moment of that connection, her faith and his works became one. Her reach and his remembering 
Is that what we're reaching out for? Is that what we're extending our arms as far as they can go just to make contact with Christ? Where his perfect obedience, his perfect love, his perfect grace can then go from a place of high concentration to a place of low concentration. Diffusion from him into us to the point that we can feel that flow and so can Jesus, as we'll see as the story continues. But before we see that, can we feel once again, just pay this poor woman the service of sitting with her in her suffering and realizing what these last 12 years have felt like. Because it'll take us 12 seconds, give or take, to actually just read the account. We need to read it with the 12 years behind it as painful backdrop. We need to be with her, strapped in right alongside her on this emotional roller coaster she's been on. Imagine the first time she begins to bleed and probably doesn't think anything of it. Just another menstrual cycle. Another sign that I wasn't given the blessing yet that I was wanting with pregnancy and the chance to become a mother in Israel. But what if it doesn't get better? What if it doesn't go away and the initial surprise now settles into more anxious concern? I'm starting to get worried about this. Maybe it comes and goes, maybe it ebbs and flows, but it's the flow that worries me. And so I'll ask people, is this normal? And when they start giving me concerned looks, then my concern deepens. And I can gauge their worry, and it only stokes my own. I decide to actually go and see a, a doctor, hoping that they can figure out what's wrong. And over and over and over again, all I get are anxious looks or sorrowful shrugs of the shoulder, a bowed head, an offered prayer, but nothing. And months turn into years and years to a decade and beyond. And my faith and my finances are both evaporating together. Can you imagine the level of anxiety? The level of worry? Maybe she's past it. And maybe there's not even anxiety left. Because anxiety suggests there's still at least some hope. Maybe now it's just deep, dark depression. Maybe now it's hopelessness resigned to her fate. And then she hears of Jesus. And this spark of faith begins to be fanned and flame. And I've just got to get to him. I have to find Jesus. But then he's always surrounded by a multitude. And that's something I cannot, I cannot brave because I can't be among them. So imagine the fear of being caught mingled with the courage of I have to go mingled with the devastation of nothing that has, has ever worked, but with the hope that this one will, if I can just get close enough to Jesus. Now imagine again this, this courage on her part, this I'm going to muscle my way through and push myself through the press and just reach out and I'm not going to touch Jesus or he'll know. But if I can just get close enough to brush up against the edge of his clothing, no one will know that. 
and I'll be healed. Imagine this fear and courage and devastation and hope all coming together in this whirlwind of emotion as she musters her courage, pushes her way through, reaches out, makes contact. And then Mark chapter 5, verse 29, and straightway, that means immediately, the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. This was not her mind playing tricks on her. This was not confirmation bias and just placebo effect, hoping that it was going to work. No, this was internal, physical knowledge. I know I'm well. And for the first time in 12 years, it won't be an issue of blood. It will be a fountain of tears, of joy, of gratitude, of relief that my suffering has finally come to its end. The way Mark says it, his language choice is profound. We saw the straight way, the immediately. She'd been suffering long enough. This is a, a quick, instantaneous change on the part of, of, from Jesus. But these other words, she was healed of that plague. The word plague there, you think about the plagues of Egypt and all that she was going through, but the word can also be translated disease or affliction, but there's a connotation here of the intensity of the affliction. We are talking an excruciating, even a torturous level of pain because the root word of that term is the word for scourge or whip. Fast forward to the end of Christ's ministry when the Roman soldiers take a scourge, these leather straps with pieces of bone or metal woven into it to make those lashes even more excruciating. And if that's the root word for the kind of plague this woman was suffering, I don't know if we can paint the picture clear enough to understand what she'd been going through. Or what about the word fountain? The fountain of her blood was dried up. We think of an issue, just a slow bleed. We'll imagine a fountain but the word also means a spring or a well. And who do we think of when we think of wells? This poor Samaritan woman also feeling hopeless and cast off and cast out. But Jesus recognizing someone in need, someone he can help. Imagine the, the well of living water springing up within her. No wonder this issue of blood, this fountain of suffering is being met by a spring of living water, welling up within Jesus to the point that it can flow out of him and into her. And then that other phrase, to feel in her body. The verb there means to know, and it's an internal, intimate, experiential knowledge. Last year, Old Testament, it would have been the verb yada, that intimate knowledge of God. Uh, and to think of this experiential, I know I'm different. I can't explain it to you. I can't, I, sorry, Luke, I know you're a physician. I would love to know how this worked, but it's not a mortal cure. And so I don't have mortal words to express it, but within my body, 
heart, soul, mind, spirit. I know I'm different. But then the story takes a turn. Uh, if we're still on the emotional roller coaster of with, of the, with this woman, what's the last emotion that she's feeling? Absolute euphoria, right? All of her worry and fear and courage and hopelessness and yet hope against hope, it's all come together into this massive crescendo and it finally bursts forth in absolute rejoicing, relief, reassurance. And just imagine everything pausing right in that moment. If you're filming this, everything else kind of fuzzies out in the background. It blurs behind her. And just to see the look on her face of absolute peace and joy, wonder, hope, a marvelous work and a wonder has taken place within me. And then all of a sudden, that roller coaster comes crashing off the tracks. As Jesus turns, and in Mark 5, verse 30, Jesus immediately knowing in himself, see, she knew in herself, well, so did he, knowing in himself that virtue had gone out of him. Here's the flow of that living water, his fountain meeting hers. He felt it, he knew it. And so he turned him about in the press. He's still being pressed in on every side. And he said, who touched my clothes? Can you imagine what she feels when she hears those four words? He knows. No, that's impossible. There's no way he felt that. I didn't touch his body. I didn't press up against him. I just touched the hem of his robe. Just a fringe, a tassel at the end of his prayer shawl. There's no way he knew now, in that moment, when euphoria turns to absolute devastation and fear, knowing that she's been, been found, she's been caught, and he's going to know that she contaminated him. In fact, muscling her way through the masses, all the crowd is going to look around. This is contact tracing. Remember those days? And was I in that room and were we within six, six feet? And did, did they cough? And did they have a mask? And did I wash my hands? Am I, am I infected? Everyone in that crowd is going to start wondering that. So no wonder this next moment, and I wonder if here she catches a glimmer of some kind of escape route. The emotional roller coaster, oh yeah, it's still intense. Because his disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou who touched me? Now in a way what they're saying here is, what kind of a question is that? Who touched you? Everyone's touching you. There's no way around it. We are so smashed together, this in the press, the multitude jostling its way forward. And yet, Jesus looked round about to see her that had done this thing. The way it's described in the Luke account adds one detail that is all important. In Luke 8, 45 to 46, Jesus said, who touched me? Again, this moment of absolute panic on her part. But the story continues. When all denied, Peter and they that were with him said, Master, the multitude throng thee and press thee, and sayest thou who touched me? Figures it would be Peter, who always opens his mouth and then puts his foot in it. <laughs> Good old, bold, impetuous Peter. Figures he'd be one to, to voice this. 
What kind of a question is that? Everybody's smashed around. We've all been touching you and it not, through no fault of our own. Okay, this is the mosh pit in the middle of the dance. This is trying to get through the, the hallways of junior high during passing period. You're just trying to avoid trash cans and lockers. But you're all, your feet don't even have to hit the ground. You're just so smashed together and you just go with the flow because there's no going against it. What kind of a question is that? And yet again, Jesus said, somebody hath touched me. For I perceive that virtue is gone out of me. Virtue power, spiritual strength, grace, tender mercy, compassion. I am filled to overflowing. And all it took was contact for it to flow from me to anyone that reaches out in faith to lay hold of my covenant compassion. Now, I wonder if this woman, for another brief instant, was cheering on Peter and the other disciples. Yeah, 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 convince him that everyone's touching him and there's no way to know this specific person who touched you. So just leave it at that and keep going. Please keep going because I cannot be found out. But Jesus wouldn't, he wouldn't let it slide. He had to know because she had to know something that only he could tell her. But did you catch the three-word detail that only Luke recalls? Matthew doesn't mention it. Mark doesn't mention it. But Luke does. And those three words were, when all denied. That's when Peter chimes in. In fact, as they're all pressed in upon Jesus, the multitudes thronging him, jostling him through the streets of Capernaum, I wonder in that instant when Jesus says, who touched me? If all of a sudden everybody kind of knee-jerk reaction backs up just an inch or two, maybe a few feet. Uh, it, it, it's packed in against themselves, pushing back against the walls of the, of, the, of the buildings around him. Just to give him a little space because no one wants to admit that I was shoving my way to the front of the line, that I was muscling my way in, and that I was jostling Jesus along the way. Man, if he really wants his personal space, I, bet, I guess we better give it to him. But they all deny. But do you catch the irony? Because what's the reality? No one should have denied. Everyone was touching him. That's what Peter knew and was dumbfounded by. What kind of a dumb question is that? Everyone's touching, but, but, but not me. Do you catch the irony? They all denied, and yet everyone's touching you. So one of these is wrong. Either everyone should admit it, or Peter, you shouldn't ask the question. I'm amazed by this moment, because Jesus, master of the situation as always, just stands there waiting for someone to admit that they were the one to touch him. I wonder, honestly, if Jesus were to come to a sacrament meeting, for example, and after the sacrament was passed, if he took the stand and looked across the crowd and asked, who touched me? Who came to the sacrament table broken and is now feeling healed? Who came with heavy burdens that you have laid down 
and watch me lift and take from you. Who came praying for a miracle and is now certain that it will come their way? Who, who came dirty and can now go home clean? Who touched me? Who needed me? Who reached out in faith and felt my virtue flow into them? And when all denied, that's the phrase that I, I don't ever want to apply to me. I don't want to deny. Because Peter's right. We all came seeking help and healing. We all came broken, needing to be fixed. We all came needing to renew our covenant connection with him to restore a relationship so when Jesus asks who touched me are we willing to raise our hand are we willing to come forward are we willing to fall at his feet and praise him saying I did I made mistakes this week and I had to come to the sacrament table I came with hope and it's been rewarded. I can go home rejoicing. But we have to be willing to admit that we needed him. Please, may we no longer deny. Because we all touched Jesus. In this woman's case, Luke, back to the Luke account, verse 47 of chapter 8. When the woman saw that she was not hid... There's no avoiding it. It was me, and he knows it. I know everyone else touched him too, but not in the way that I did. Not in the way that I could feel virtue flow out of him and flow into me. He felt it too. That connection was not just a brush up against the fringe. It was spirit to spirit, soul to soul, some kind of covenant connection. And it was me. I'm not hid Mark, uh, his account, it adds, knowing what was done in her. So again, it's, it's obvious. And so what does she do? She came trembling, still on this emotional roller coaster. What's he going to say? What will the people think, knowing that I've touched and contaminated them? She came trembling and falling down before him and declared unto him, notice this phrase, before all the people. So yes, this is painfully public. And everyone here is going to know. But what does she declare before the people? This is the part that amazes me. She could have just said, it was me. And then kind of frozen in fear, hoped that that was a sufficient confession. And Jesus would just give her a knowing look, maybe a smile or a wink, and then go on with no other words spoken. Because then no one else has to know that I contaminated them on the way to my miraculous touch. But no, she declared unto him before all the people for what cause she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. The way, the, the way Mark account sums it up, it says she told him all the truth. She didn't withhold anything. She had nothing to hide, especially once she knew that nothing could be hid. 
It's not just what you did for me. It's why I came to you in the first place. I'm not saying that we have to air our dirty laundry in public as we are confessing that I came to be touched by Christ. That dirty laundry can be aired in a bishop's office. But to let people know that I need heaven's help, that I need the Savior's healing touch, because I'm broken without it. This is the cause for which I've come. And I was healed. I love this full admission on her part. In some ways, she now starts to seem to me almost like Mother Eve, realizing I cannot hide in the bushes. I will come forward and explain. This is why I partook of the fruit. It was the only solution I could see. The only chance to live the first commandment God gave us, multiply and replenish, even at the expense of the second. That glorious courage on both of these women's part. And again, why is Jesus making her do it? This is not a public shaming. This is a public praise. Because with all eyes on her now, and again, probably worried themselves. I mean, this would be an emotional roller coaster for the crowd as well. Shocked by a miracle that they were completely unaware of. But at the same time, a little horrified by the fact that, am I now ritually impure? because of what it took place. But remember, Jesus with the leper, don't worry, it, only one of us is contagious, and it's not you, it's me. I am so pure that your impurities cannot change me, but my purity can change you. Remember, flow goes down. So your issue of blood isn't flowing up to me. My issue of virtue is flowing down into you. And he wants not only her to know that, but the multitudes to know it as well. For her sake, because notice the statement, Mark chapter 5, verse 34, he said unto her, daughter. Remember to the man that was lowered on the, the bed through the roof, Jesus called him son. Well, to this woman, he calls her daughter. Thy faith hath made thee whole. In the Luke account, we add this phrase, Daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. And then the end of his statement, Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. Is there a difference between being healed and being whole? I think so. She knew of the physical healing that could now turn into a mental and emotional healing. But what about the social healing, having been cut off from society for the last 12 years? Now, all of a sudden, instead of being looked at in concern and worry and disgust, now it's looking at her in admiration. A woman of so much faith. Wow, she came and was cleansed. And it was her faith that played a part in this. That's incredibly generous on the part of Jesus also. Remember when he said to John the Baptist, thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. You and I are about to do something amazing here, John. Same with this woman, you and I. Yes, my virtue flowed into you, but your faith flowed into me. And thy faith hath made thee whole. Yes, go in peace. Go in praise. Go in joy. 
and go surrounded by people that now see the worth of your magnificent soul. Just like he did with the man, the demoniac with legion cast out. Go home to your friends. You still have many. Same with this incredible woman. I, I just wish we could pause and bask in this beautiful moment just to interview her, to, ha to have her tell us more of her story, to just sit in awe of what Jesus has just done. I just want to pause and soak it all in. But Jairus doesn't want to give me that time. Don't lose sight of him. He's been here the whole time. He has been worried and, and anxious and urgent. You remember, he's driving the ambulance. And Jesus, we got to go because my daughter is at the point of death. In fact, she may have crossed the point. We got to go. This is 911. This is emergency. This is sirens bla blaring and lights blazing. And we've got to go. When Peter says, what kind of a question is it? Who touched me? I bet Jairus is there going, yeah, exactly. So everybody did. And yeah, on and on. We got to go, 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 go. In fact, I'm about to touch you and push you for further faster. We can't afford to wait. My wife's worried sick. My daughter is, please hurry. Time is of the essence. Back to our ambulance analogy. Imagine you're rushing to get to a hospital, but you're in a place like, oh, New York City. Traffic everywhere. There's the crowds pressing in and the multitudes thronging. Jesus. And imagine this 911 call and the ambulance blaring their way down Fifth Avenue. And then all of a sudden, Jesus, who's there in the ambulance with you, and you're just trying to get the patient to the hospital because time is of the essence. Imagine Jesus just putting his hand on your arm as you're holding the wheel and he says, stop, pull over right now. What? Okay. And you do, and you're like, what are we doing? He said, someone in that last intersection honked at us. What? They honked at us? This is New York City. Everybody honks. That has nothing. What are you doing wasting the time of this patient? We got to get there. But for Jesus, oh no, somebody honked. And I need to know who. Because there's more miracles taking place than one right now. I think we need to realize that when we're the one impatiently waiting for our turn, Maybe Jesus is pausing our process because it's finally time for someone else to get the help. They've been waiting a long, long time to receive. In fact, if you notice this element of the action, it's so dramatic here. I love this, this scene. Back to Mark chapter 5, look at verse 35 and 36. While he yet spake, so this is still going on. Jesus is like mid-sentence. Is he still saying, go in peace, behold of thy plague? But as he's engaged in this conversation with the woman, while he yet spake, there came from the ruler of the synagogue's house certain which said, thy daughter is dead. So just what you worried about. When you left, she was at the point of death. By the time you got there, you, you wondered if she was already gone. Well, she, she has passed. And so they ask their question, why troublest thou the master any further? In Luke's account, it's not even a question. It's just a statement. Trouble not the master. It's over. We were too late. 
we didn't make it in time. And so now there's no use troubling Jesus because his window of opportunity has come slamming shut. What amazes me here is before Jairus can even say a thing in response, how does Jesus respond? Remember, he's mid-sentence. He's as he yet spake. He's talking to this woman and it's like eyes and, and mouth in one direction, ears still master the situation, knowing what's going on in everybody's mind and heart. And overhearing these servants coming with the devastating news. Have you ever followed an ambulance that is racing towards the hospital? And all of a sudden, the ambulance slows down and they turn off the siren and turn off the lights. Something happened inside that ambulance and it wasn't good news. Imagine all the urgency now gone from Jairus. There's no more need to rush. Jesus, take all the time you need with this woman because there's no reason to hurry. But as the weight of the world is now crashing down on Jairus' shoulders, in the midst of this conversation that he's hearing from his servants and Jesus is overhearing from them, even as he's talking to this woman, he just casts a sideways glance at Jairus and says five of the most powerful words ever. As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he saith unto the ruler of the synagogue, Be not afraid. Only believe. Oh, can you imagine a more powerful clarion call to faith? Hold on to it. It's not too late for me. Even if you think it's too late for your daughter. Be not afraid. Fear not. You came with faith. Don't allow fear to cast faith back now. Only believe. In the Luke version, he says, fear not. Believe only and she shall be made whole. It's never too late for me. Don't fear. No, no concern. Better not be any complaint that I paused things and put your experience, your daughter's health on hold. Because you remember this little detail? Luke remembers it. How old was Jairus's daughter? She was 12. How long had this woman suffered with the issue of blood? 12 years. There's some beautiful poetic parallelism there. As if Jesus, when he looks at Jairus and says, you just, you just hold on. You don't fear. You keep believing. Because this woman has been suffering pain as long as you have been feeling joy with your little girl. It's her turn. And if you have to wait a little longer, this is a chance for the first to be last and the last to be first. And she gets bumped to the front of the line. The last 12 years for the two of you have been worlds apart. And if you have to suffer a moment of agony so that I can sit here and rejoice in this moment of pure joy with her, so be it. While mustering all of his faith as well as his patience and courage, Jairus waits for this scene with the woman to come to its close. Well, it doesn't take long 
And in verse 37 of Mark 5, he suffered no man to follow him, Jesus that is, save Peter and James and John, the brother of James. We're going to see more and more frequently those three singled out. They seem to be being distinguished by the Lord for special consideration. Think of an initial first presidency, not just an initial quorum of the twelve. Peter, James, and John come with Jesus. He cometh to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and seeth the tumult, and them that wept and wailed greatly. Matthew mentions minstrels and people making a noise. And when Jesus was come in, he saith unto them, Why make ye this ado, and weep? The damsel is not dead, but sleepeth. Now, who are these people? There is a certain likelihood that they may be professional mourners. Why else are minstrels coming? People making a noise. But I hope we don't reduce it just to that. That these are people... Remember earlier when I talked about who are the crowds? Are they curious onlookers or are they faithful disciples? I would imagine that this group is consisting of both types. Because if, if Jairus was the ruler of the synagogue, he would have had connections and friends. People that looked to him for spiritual leadership. And now when he's in need, have people, how much, was it public knowledge that his daughter was suffering? Was this a sudden thing? We don't know enough detail. But I would imagine there were also friends and family members there hoping to help, trying to serve, and staying to mourn once the devastating news came that Jairus hadn't made it back in time and that nothing could be done. She was gone. So this stranger who comes in, in the midst of this tumult and noise and sorrow and mourning, just to say, what are you doing all this for? She's only asleep upstairs. <laughs> are you kidding me? We've been here. You don't know what's going on. So I think in some ways their reaction is understandable. Verse 40, they laughed him to scorn. The way Luke put it, they laughed him to scorn knowing that she was dead. We know something you don't know. So don't come in here cavalierly saying that, no, it's, it's all fine. She's just asleep. Now then again, sleep can be metaphorical. Jesus will even use sleep to describe the death of Lazarus. And he knows full well that he's dead, literally. Jesus, what do you mean by this? Well, either way, they do not share his faith in what's about to happen. For them, it's almost comical. At least it would be if this weren't such an inappropriate time to make such a comment as, oh, she's just asleep. So there's the scorn element along with the laughter. What does Jesus do? When he had put them all out, he only took five people with him. He taketh the father and the mother of the damsel and them that were with him, namely Peter, James, and John, and entereth in where the damsel was lying. And he took the damsel by the hand and said unto her, Talitha kumi, which is being interpreted, Damsel, I say unto thee, arise. He's speaking directly to her. Damsel, I say unto thee. Just like he did to the son of the widow of Nain, the body, the corpse lying there on the bier. And yet Jesus addresses him as though he were present. As far as Jesus was concerned, he was. And so was she. 
So to you I say, arise. That's one invitation Jesus always leaves with all of us. No matter how spiritually dead we may seem, he beckons us to climb, to ascend with him. And even the dead are willing to do that when Jesus comes. In verse 42, and straightway, there's that immediacy again, the damsel arose and walked. Luke adds this detail, her spirit came again. And again, I can only imagine how Luke, the physician, is scratching his head wondering, how did he do this? Somehow the spirit returned. I don't know. Mark adds the detail, for she was of the age of 12 years. There's that reminder, the poetic parallelism to the woman. And they were astonished with a great astonishment. <laughs> of course they were. Meanwhile, Jesus charged them straightly that no man should know it and commanded that something should be given her to eat. It's amazing in the aftermath of this magnificent miracle. Jesus is not going to tell them, yeah, why don't you go down to the people? Go out of the door and bring your living daughter with you to show all those people that just laughed me to scorn. Oh, yeah, who's laughing now? She's awake, wide awake. Where was your faith? No, he's not trying to prove them wrong. He's not trying to prove himself right. He's just trying to do the right by the people with the faith in his ability to do it. So keep the messianic secret. No need to rub it into anyone else's face or even just to proclaim the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. No, this miracle was just for you. But you know, she's probably hungry. You should feed her. <laughs> just a funny little moment at the end of this scene. I guess dying and being brought back to life really burns a lot of calories. I don't know. Never, never done that myself. But it's amazing that thinking of everyone's spiritual needs, of their emotional and mental needs, but even thinking of her physical needs, not just the big ones like, it sure would be nice to be alive again, but yeah, we, maybe we need to multiply some loaves and fishes today. We'll see him do just that in a few weeks. Well, despite the fact that he told them to keep the messianic secret, how could they? In Matthew's account, in chapter 9, verse 26, the fame hereof went abroad into all that land. And I don't think it could have been helped. Again, if there's crowds around, if this is the daughter of the ruler of the synagogue, if the people had come to mourn, and then it's like, oh, no, 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 we were canceling the funeral. I've heard of marriages being canceled. I don't know if I've ever heard of a funeral being canceled. Maybe postponed a day or two, but just, nope, we're not going to have one of those anymore. Huh? Yeah, the fame of that is going to spread abroad, no matter what. Now, there's a few other miracles we'll see before we shift to the apostles. But I do want to say one last thing about this particular miracle, because it reminded me of, or reminds me of a, a bit of a miracle God gave me in reminding me about this story. To set the stage, I was in Tennessee, uh, during, working on my PhD. I was uh, the token Latter-day Saint at a divinity school, and 
People didn't know me, but they knew the Divinity School and they trusted Vanderbilt. And so during the Mitt Romney campaign, when it's the South, so most people want to vote Republican, but it's the Bible Belt, so nobody wants to vote for a Mormon, I got all kinds of invitations by various congregations uh, to please come and explain your church so we can feel comfortable voting for the Antichrist. And I went to Episcopalians and Disciples of Christ and Presbyterians and Catholics and Methodists, all, all kinds of congregations throughout the Middle Tennessee to explain the church. And I loved the opportunity. But what I would typically do is I'd spend maybe 10 or 15 minutes explaining some basics about the church. And then I'd just open it up to Q&A because I knew they were curious and wanted to know specific things. So I wanted them to be able to ask those questions. It was a little unnerving for me because I never knew what I was going to get. But one particular day, this little sweet little old lady wasn't so sweet in her question. She was angry and kind of spat out her question at me and said, why can't people that are not part of your church go into the t your temple? Hmm. And there was so much emotion behind the question, I wondered if there was a personal experience behind it too. And I asked her, let me guess, have you had a, maybe a grandchild that joined my church? fell in love with another member of my church and they ended up getting married in one of our temples and you weren't allowed to go. And that's exactly what had happened. And it hurt. And how could it not? Well, how do I explain that? Why weren't you invited to your own grandchild's wedding? Typically what we explain is, oh, well, to, go en to enter the temple, you have to be worthy. Huh, yeah, that's true. But what am I suggesting? when I use that as the reason this grandmother wasn't able to go to her own grandchild's wedding. Oh, because you have to be worthy? What are you saying? I'm not? Hmm, I, I didn't mean to say it that way, but I guess that's exactly what I said. I just branded her unworthy. I mean, Scarlet, you, right? Uh, this, this grandma isn't worthy. And I'm not, I'm in no position to say that. A sweet little old lady. Wonderful little Protestant evangelical Christian, probably as worthy as anyone who was in the temple with her grandchild. So it wasn't a matter of worthiness. And that was the first time it really dawned on me. Right there in that moment, it was like freeze frame, pause time, and the Lord's like, you need to understand a few things here, Halverson, or you're about to put your foot in your mouth. So don't go, don't play the worthiness card. This is a wonderful grandmother. It's not about worthiness alone. What else is it? I didn't know. But it was one of those moments of, oh, open your mouth and it shall be filled. And I'm like, uh, with what? Just try. Okay. So I heard myself say to her, I first apologized and empathized and just said, that would be really, really hard. I understand where you're coming from. Can I ask you a question? And this is where things got weird for me because I hadn't, I hadn't planned on this. I asked her, do you believe that our church is the true church of Jesus Christ? And that caught her off guard. She's all, uh, I, I'm not trying to be offensive, but, but no, I don't. And I said, it's okay, it's okay. I, I, I do, and you don't, and that's fine. We'll just have to agree to disagree. But let me ask you, do you believe that Joseph Smith was called to be a prophet of God? Saw the Father and the Son? And she's like, no, I mean, no offense. And I'm like, none taken. But I do believe that. So follow-up question. Do you believe that Joseph Smith received priesthood power from ancient holders of that same priesthood? We're talking John the Baptist, Peter, James, and John, 
in fact, do you believe that Elijah appeared to Joseph Smith in the Kirtland Temple to give him sealing powers? That what he binds on earth is bound in heaven and loosed on earth is loosed in heaven, just like Jesus gave to Peter in, what is that, uh, chapter 16 of Matthew? And she's all, huh? I guess I better brush up on my Matthew 16. But I had no idea you Latter-day Saints believed in that. Uh, again, again, no offense. I'm like, none taken. But no, I don't believe that. Well, I do. And here's why that's important, my dear sister. I believe in all of those things. And it's important because in the temple, that same sealing power, bind on earth and have it bound in heaven, there's someone in the temple with that authority. And so when a couple is not just married in the temple, they are sealed in the temple. And their marriage is sealed in heaven, not just on earth. I believe that's happening. As impossible as it sounds. And all of a sudden, the Spirit said, the raising of the daughter of Jairus. And all of a sudden, I saw that story in a different light. And I asked her about that story. She knew it. She's a good Bible Belt Christian. I said, do you remember how it worked? Who was there mourning the death of this sweet little girl? I'm sure friends and family were there. I'm sure people that were worthy to be there and loved her and wished for a miracle. But when Jesus came and suggested that one was about to take place, they didn't believe. And I can't blame them because they knew it. They knew she was dead. And so for Jesus to say, oh, no, no, she's just asleep and I'm going to wake her up. And they laughed him to scorn. So what did Jesus do? As much as you love her, as worthy as you are to be here, because I'm about to make the impossible possible in that little room, I can only have faith within. So mom, dad, I know you have it. Peter, James, John, you better have it. Come with me. And the six of us will concentrate our faith on the seventh and the impossible will become possible because we fear not, but are believing. Faith, faith provided for that miracle, the virtue and power of Jesus, but thy faith hath made her whole. And they had that faith. The people outside did not. Now, again, in your case, as you just admitted, you don't have faith in the restoration of the gospel through the prophet Joseph Smith, and I can't blame you for that. I wouldn't believe it either if I hadn't had the spirit witness that it was all true. I can't blame you for not believing that in a temple of God, there is some mere mortal that has the authority to stare down death, to look at the grim reaper himself and say, you are not allowed to break up this, cu this couple. Till death do you part? No. You, death, cannot part this pair. You're not welcome here. And I am binding on earth and having, having it bound in heaven. My sweet sister, that's impossible. But I believe it's possible. When I go to a ceiling in the temple, it is not as a spectator. I am going to add my faith to the stockpile. I am going, willing a miracle into existence. And everyone there 
coming with faith and with testimony, with conviction that the impossible is about to become possible. It's about to be real. That's, what's ha- that's what happens in this, in this setting. That's what happens in a temple. And as soon as it's over, what happens? Take this sweet little girl and feed her and bring her out to her friends and let's have a wedding reception. Let's rejoice because all these wonderful people that were mourning over her loss can now rejoice in her return. That's for us. That's what happens at the wedding reception. And we want everyone to come and rejoice. But where the miracle actually takes place, there must be faith and only faith with no doubt at all. By the end of that explanation, this sweet little old lady was sweet again. And she understood. And she was okay with it. She said, that makes a lot more sense. I... I... I shouldn't be there. Because I don't have faith to add to the pile. I... I, I loved the wedding reception. I'm glad I went to that. I'm like, of course you were. But you were first in line rejoicing with your, grand, with your grandchild. But yeah, to come into the temple, we've got to believe. I do love participating in saving ordinances. Whether I'm voice or just in the circle or just in the ceiling room. Typically for me, I try to repeat in my own mind every word that's being uttered by the voice of authority. Just so that I can feel like I'm participating and adding my faith to that fire. Next time you go to the temple, or a baptism, or the sacrament, be not afraid, but believe. And miracles will come as a result. Right on the heels of this, major, these two major, major miracles, we get a few others that Matthew mentions almost just in passing before he moves on in chapter 10 to the call of the apostles. If we could spend at least a few minutes on these ones, though, they're worth our attention. Matthew chapter 9, verse 27 and 28. When Jesus departed thence, two blind men followed him, crying and saying, Thou son of David, here it is, king of kings, have mercy on us. Not justice, we don't deserve this, but out of thy tender mercy, please give us eyes to see. Now, he doesn't honor this petition immediately. It's really interesting. Instead, what does he do? It says, when he was come into the house. So he's, he's departed from the house of Jairus. He's walking through the streets, I'm sure, pressed in by the multitudes once again. These two blind men following, crying, asking, pleading. And he says, he basically ignores them until he gets into a house. And these blind men came to him. They haven't given up. And Jesus saith unto them, believe ye that I am able to do this? Again, testing their faith. Faith precedes the miracle. You want the miracle. Do you have the faith? And they said unto him, yea, Lord. Again, this is like the lepers, if thou wilt, thou canst. Yes, we do believe. Now, I want to ask something before Jesus takes another step. 
why did he take so many steps to get to the house? Why did he make these blind people, of all, of all people, take all those steps as well? Why not just stop right what he was doing? That's what he did for the centurion. That's what he did with so many others. But no, I'm going to pretend I didn't even hear you and just keep walking and I'll see what you do. Do we keep following Jesus even when it seems like our prayers are going unanswered? They did. And they were blind. Which makes you wonder, how did they follow him? <laughs> it's not by sight. So what it, would, it would have been by hearing. The multitude, where's he going? Probably asking around. It looks like he just went around this corner. Oh, he just stepped into a house. Oh, then I've got to follow Sound would be one. Touch would be another. And you picture them reaching out with their hands, just trying to work their way through the multitudes and find this is the house and this is the door and I'm opening it and I'm coming in. We follow Christ not by sight, but by what we hear. He is the word of God after all. And by what we feel. That's the spirit of God within us. I do love the thought of each of us as blind men, blind women, feeling our way to Jesus, following the sound of the Spirit. It's interesting because even in Lehi's dream, how did they find their way to the tree of life? Maybe from a distance they saw it at first, but then when they're covered by the mists of darkness, they're, they're blind as well. There's no seeing Jesus to follow him. But can you picture them hearing the voice of Lehi calling from the tree, come and partake of the fruit, and then touch? What are they touching? They are holding fast to the iron rod and moving forward. Meanwhile, others are still caught in the same mist of darkness, but they are heading toward the great and spacious building. And how do they find their way there? It's not sight for them either. Is it sound as they hear the mockery, the carnal laughter of those in the great and spacious building? And actually, what, Le what Nephi does give us in that, in that account, it says many were the multitudes that felt their way toward that strange building. They felt their way. Either way, it's feeling. Following the feelings of the Spirit or following the feelings of the flesh. And the pull of the love of God or the pull of the shame of the world. Oh, it's so interesting how these blind men are coming unto Christ. And again, Jesus isn't making it over easy. Will you follow me all the way into the house of God? Maybe this is part of his messianic secret too. I want you to see, but I don't want everyone else to see how I help you see. Well, they get there, they come. And in response to their faith, yea, Lord, we believe thou art able to do this. Chapter 9 of Matthew, verse 29 to 31. Then touched he their eyes, saying, so again, he's using the same senses. He touched, now they're feeling something. He said, now they're hearing something. According to your faith, be it unto you. So this is going to be directly proportional. If you have enough faith to see, then you'll see. And guess what? They did. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus straightly charged them, saying, See that no man know it. But they, when they were departed, spread abroad his fame in all that country. And again, they probably couldn't help it. And even if they didn't say a word, they didn't have to. 
Because anyone who saw them going, wait, 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 aren't those the, the blind guys? Aren't they the, what in the world? How did they? Yeah, rumors will spread. Reports will go. The word, logos, will blaze abroad. Some things just can't be hidden. Like cities set on a hill. Like those willing to be the light of the world. Those allowing people to glorify God by seeing his good works in them. I think this is beautiful. In some ways, can we be so obviously changed by Christ that people just know and it's impossible to keep hidden his influence in our lives? That will spread his fame abroad, I assure you. Now, if that's among the blind, now let's meet the, the dumb. Those who cannot see, now we meet someone who cannot speak. Chapter 9 of Matthew, verse 32 and 33. As they went out, behold, they brought to him a dumb man, possessed with a devil. And again, was this two maladies for the price of one? He's a demoniac and dumb, unable to speak. Or did they perceive his dumbness as evidence that there must be some demon he's wrestling with that's bound his tongue? Well, either way, when the devil was cast out, the dumb spake and the multitudes marveled, saying, it was never so seen in Israel. That's for sure. To open the eye, that's a good job for the light of the world. To loose the tongue, oh, perfect for someone known as the Word made flesh. This is exactly what Jesus came in the world to do. So whatever demon is keeping you from opening your mouth and let it be, letting it be filled, whatever devil is binding your tongue so that you cannot speak praises to, to, the, to God and spread the glad tidings of the kingdom of God, then cast that devil out because the world deserves to know. Well, there will always be opposition. There was to Jesus. And so in chapter 9, verse 34, the Pharisees said, oh, he casteth out devils through the prince of the devils. And there they are with their spin control, as always. We'll actually see that brought up again and, and dealt with at greater length later. So we'll save it for that. But there will always be those trying to shut the eyes of those who were just given sight. And trying to silence those that have just mustered their first words of testimony. Be prepared for that. Then, finally, Matthew 9, verse 35 and 36. Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. There they are again, those three verbs that Elder Holland pointed out. Teaching, preaching, healing. Synonymous, as far as the Savior is concerned. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them. And that's the key word describing the character of Christ, what moves him to perform these miracles. It's his compassion. Because they fainted, these multitudes did, and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Now that's a hinge passage because we've just seen two chapters worth of miracles motivated by the compassion of Christ. He's moved when he sees these multitudes because they're just little lambs and they need a good shepherd. And there's no better shepherd than the good shepherd himself. The challenge is 
multitudes, crowds pressing upon him everywhere he goes. And that's just in this one little town. Same things happen in other places wherever he's gone, but he can't be everywhere. Ah, do you see the hinge now turning? And why chapter 10 follows chapter 9 in Matthew's account? Because now, how do I solve this? How do I meet the needs of so many precious sheep? Matthew 9, 37 and 38, Then saith he unto his disciples, and remember, disciples are just followers, and there are countless numbers of them. The Lord's words to them, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. We even sing that in one of our hymns. The harvest is great, but the laborers are few. So what is the Lord's response to that situation? Too much work, too little time, not enough hands to do it. He asks them for their help. Pray ye therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. After all, when it's harvest time, it's all hands on deck. Think about all the growth that we've seen so far. Following in the wake of these miraculous acts of compassion. News blazing abroad, glad tidings sounding in every ear. So much growth. And if we cannot gather that growth into the garner of God, then it all went to waste. So harvest time. Time to gather more gatherers. Time to take of these disciples and decide which of them can be called apostles. What we'll see in the second half of this week's material is Jesus calling 12 to meet the needs of the 12 tribes of the house of Israel, to let them know that they are in good hands, in the hands of the Lord of the harvest. And these fields that are white already for that harvest are about to be brought into the garner of God. To meet the apostles in this second half is a glorious thing. We've been seeing them come, come and see. And then as Jesus has met with fishermen or seen tax collectors and others bringing friends and pointing people in his direction, we are now ready to name the 12 apostles. For this, we'll turn from Matthew 9 to Matthew 10, but let's get a little help from Luke and Mark along the way. They give us a few preliminary details that are really important. The way chapter, eight, uh, excuse me, chapter 9 of Matthew ends, the harvest is great, but the laborers refuse. So please pray for more laborers. And then you turn the page and right as chapter 10 starts, and boom, here are the, ten, here are the 12 apostles. But, in, but pause, slow it down with Luke and Mark's help. And notice what Luke adds, chapter 6, verse 12 and 13. It came to pass in those days that he, Jesus, went out into a mountain to pray. This is Christ ascending the mountain of the Lord. He trying to rise above the world below him and connect with a God above. He goes to a mountain to pray. He continued all night in prayer to God. His own Enos-like experience. But why? And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples, his followers, and of them he chose twelve, whom also he named apostles. Why was Jesus spending all night in communion with his Father in heaven? Well, based on the context, 
because once the sun came up, he would raise apostles out of a multitude of disciples. And imagine how close to the Father he would want to be, to be able to discern among the multitudes. You see the difference between a disciple and an apostle? A disciple is one who comes to learn. A disciple, excuse me, an apostle is one who is sent to teach. We have followers and we have leaders. We have hearers and we have teachers. We have those who come and those that are sent. Apostle just means one who is sent. And who can Jesus trust to send out and represent him to other multitudes? I'd say that's definitely worth a night of prayer. In the Mark version, you see this in chapter 3, verse 13 through 15. He goeth up into a mountain, same idea, and calleth unto him whom he would. And they came unto him. And he ordained twelve that they should be with him and that he might send them forth to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out devils. In other words, to do what Jesus himself had been doing. But did you catch those wonderful phrases? What are these apostles called to do? Two things that, you, that are really hard to do simultaneously. Number one, to be with me. And number two, to go from me to go preach my word. I love that combination. And typically, the best leaders are the ones who had been to that point the best followers. The ones who want to stay with Jesus more than anything else in life. Oh yes, those are the ones you can afford to send out in his name. Because they'll want to come right back to him and bringing sheaves upon their shoulders. Notice the other phrase, he calleth unto him whom he would. And that to me is a beautiful example of, it's the, Lord, the Lord's decision. And who does he call to be apostles? Whomever he would. I may have told you this story before, but when, when Heber J. Grant was a junior apostle, and there was a first vacancy in the Quorum of the Twelve that needed to be filled. And they, the other 14 men, first presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve, came together to discuss names of people that they'd met in their worldwide ministries. Who is a possibility here? And young Heber J. Grant mentioned a friend of his that he knew would be an amazing church leader. Came from a strong leader, family of leaders in the church and thought he'd be an amazing apostle. And other apostles mentioned other possibilities. And as they discussed and as they prayed... Ultimately, it was the president of the church that had the final word. And it wasn't the person that Elder Grant suggested. But the next time there was a vacancy, he suggested the same name. And the next time, and the next time, and the next time, he kept bringing this up. Well, by the time the chief apostle was none other than Heber J. Grant, guess what? There was a time to fill another vacancy in the quorum. And everybody kind of knew who, who it was going to be. Because it was the same name that... Elder Grant had always brought up. Sure enough, as they're going around discussing things, he mentioned the name, and others mentioned other names, perhaps just feeling like, well, it's all academic at this point, but we might as well, I might as well mention somebody. So at least it looks like there's other possibilities. Well, when it came time to pray after their time of discussion, the answer to that prayer came clearly and surprisingly to President Grant that as wonderful as this friend of his was, that's not whom the Lord had called or chosen. To borrow the phrase here from the book of Mark, he calleth unto him whom he would, and he would call someone else. That apostle happened to be Melvin J. Ballard, and later, 
President Grant said, I've always known this is Christ's church and not mine, but that became even more crystal clear. When I called practically a stranger to the Quorum of the Twelve, instead of my best lifelong friend, and yet through the Depression era, he relied upon the wisdom of Melvin J. Ballard probably more than anybody. The Lord made the call, not President Grant. And that's important for us to understand. Anytime a vacancy in the Quorum of the Twelve is, is filled, the Lord calleth unto him whom he would. And it's from among disciples who more than anything wanted to be with Jesus and could therefore be trusted to be sent out by Jesus. Now Mark 6 adds a few more details regarding the apostles and their missions. In verse 7, he called unto him the twelve and began to send them forth by two and two. Remember, Jewish law requires that by the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. So now you have six companionships ready to go out in all the directions of the, of the compass to go blaze abroad the good news. He sent them forth by two and two and gave them power over unclean spirits and commanded them that they should take nothing for their journey save a staff only, no scrip, no bread, no money in their purse. We'll see more of those instructions to the apostles once we turn to Matthew chapter 10. But here, let it suffice that he's calling them and sending them out. And then we get one more contextual element before their mission actually begins. For this, go to the beginning of Mark 6. Look at the first two verses. He went out from thence. He's been performing miracles to this point. He came into his own country, and his disciples follow him. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? I mean, certainly not from Nazareth, right? I mean, can any good thing come from that? Well, they ask, What wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Now, this is either Mark's version of the story we saw more fully in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus is at the synagogue there in his hometown of Nazareth, and he takes the Isaiah scroll and reads a messianic prophecy and says, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And everyone's shock and awe, like, what? How is this possible? This is either a, a, the same event, just given more sparsely in Mark's account, or perhaps it's a similar experience, that it happened at a, some different time period. But again, doubt in his own hometown. People wondering who he really is. You see, in verse 3 and 4, keep reading the same story in Mark 6, they say, is not this the carpenter or the craftsman, I mean, the, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judah and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. How dare he think he's more than, than what we know him to be? But Jesus said unto them, Well, a prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. Just like we saw in the account in Luke. But not just no prophet in his own country, but no prophet among his own kin, extended family. Like these small towns are full of kin. Or even within his own house. It's like we're zeroing in on the people that know you best. And could they possibly believe that God might have a bigger plan for you than, than they did? I imagine that's something that apostles have to deal with too. Do people who know me best actually know me least as far as what God happens to see in me? 
as far as potential is concerned. That's what helps explain the next few verses, Mark 6, verse 5 through 7, that he, Jesus, could there do no mighty work, uh, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went round about the villages teaching, and he called unto him the twelve, and then we're off and running with this ministry of the apostles. Now, again, all that beginning of Mark 6 by way of context. We saw Jesus go climb the mountain to spend the night in prayer, in preparation. We saw his own ministry of miracles and realizing it's all hands on deck. I can't do it all myself. But also here you put the ministry of the apostles in the context of doubt. And those closest to Jesus, limiting him. That's ironic. There's actually a verse in the Psalms. It's a historical psalm that walks you through the, the Exodus story. And in the middle of it all, it says that, the, that they limited the Holy One of Israel. That's amazing. How does mortality limit omnipotence? Well, through our lack of faith. The fringe will always be there on Jesus' garment. His obedience <laughs> is unfailing. But do we have the faith to reach out and connect to it? Faith precedes the miracles. He can always perform the miracles, but without our faith, there's no precedent, nothing to precede it. And to me, there's, it's fascinating. We saw when, when they, the friends lowered down their, the, the man on the bed, the palsied man, remember this? And it says that Jesus saw their faith. He's marveling at it. Or when he spins around the centurion to show the, the Israelites, you, you get a load of this guy. He's amazing. Jesus marveling at faith, but here marveling at unbelief. Oh, ye of little faith, how could you not see past what you thought you knew about me? Can you not see the hand of God? Well, it, this is Mark's account, like I said. It's in this context that the apostles are sent out to preach and to minister. Makes you wonder, did Jesus think that they would have success even in places that he didn't? Because we'd think, well, of course, they would never be able to do what Jesus can't do. Well, I don't know. On the one hand, no man, is pro no man is prophet in his own country, and so familiarity breeds contempt, and so no, I don't believe in Jesus. But on the other hand, sometimes we need someone closer to us to connect with. Sometimes it's not, it's not the familiarity of Jesus. <laughs> it's the distance of his divinity. Like, I, I, he's untouchable. It's like when some people say, what would Jesus do? And it's like, well, yeah, he would do this, but I'm not going to do that because I'm nothing like Jesus. Okay, then what would a mere mortal do? Hmm. But how about an apostolic one? Someone a lot more like me, on my level at least, but making incredible decisions and choosing the right, whatever the cost. If in the Book of Mormon, if Alma is too untouchable, then it's nice to have an Amulek, a homegrown Amulek. Really? He knows these things? And God's calling him, working through him? Wow, that's amazing. Maybe I'll take this thing seriously. I wonder if that is part of, of the calling of these 12 apostles as well. Jesus is the rock. He is the redeemer. But if that rock seems too lofty, then maybe a, a little pebble like Peter will do. Someone a little more relatable.
With that, let's go back to Matthew's version, okay? Chapter 9 ended with the harvest great, laborers are few. We've got to change that. So pray for more laborers. Then chapter 10 begins, and here's the calling of the 12 apostles. Chapter 10, verse 1, when he had called unto him his 12 disciples, they're called disciples here, but we know them as the apostles, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal all manner of sickness, all manner of disease, Again, exactly the kinds of things that Jesus had been doing for the last two chapters in Matthew. In Luke's account, we get this version, chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. Then he called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. So it's not just that they had power, they had authority too. And that's going to be an important aspect. He goes on, he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So there's going to be teaching, preaching, healing among them too. And remember, at first they're just disciples. But of them I can make apostles. And how many? Twelve. Why? Because there's twelve tribes of Israel. And I want everyone to see themselves in these great servants of God. They represent you. And I'm teaching them so that they can teach you. The story then continues, chapter 10, verse 2 through 4. We're back to Matthew's account. And we'll stay here for the, for the remainder of this week's lesson, by and large, because this is the, the longest, deepest, most detailed account of the kind of instruction that Jesus gives his 12 apostles before he sends them forth. Now, let's get their names down first. Matthew 10, 2 through 4. Now, the names of the 12 apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter. And we're going to see more and more that Simon stands out as the chief apostle. He's first on the list for a reason. Yes, Jesus renames him Peter, but there's still a lot of Simon in him that he needs to to overcome. He's not quite rock-like yet, but we'll get there. Just imagine what happens to a person when they give Jesus free reign. Okay. Second, he says, and Andrew, his brother, then James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. We're kind of starting to see pairs already. Two brothers, Simon and, P- and Andrew. Two brothers, James and John. In the Mark account of this, by the way, they're given their nickname. It says he surnamed them Boanerges, which is the sons of thunder. Another awesome nickname. If, Peter gets, if Simon gets to be the rock, then James and John. I mean, I got nicknames from my whole first presidency here. Yeah, the sons of thunder on either side of the rock. Eh, not bad. Uh, We're going to see a little bit later that that nickname may have been appropriate in more ways than one, uh, for both good and not so good. But anyway, now we have four apostles. Now for the other eight, those are the, the, well, the three we know best. Add in Andrew as part of the family, but then the eight beyond that. Philip and Bartholomew. Now, Bartholomew is mentioned in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's Nathaniel that's mentioned in the book of John. Remember back when we studied John chapter 1 and Philip finds Nathaniel and says, man, you got to see this guy. You got to meet him. What? Anything good thing out of Nazareth? How could that? Nathaniel, the Israelite in whom there is no guile. Well, yeah, that's Bartholomew. Same guy. Next pair, Thomas. We'll call him Doubting Thomas, but he has so many other redeeming qualities uh, that we need to wrestle with and honor him for before the doubt sets in. Uh, Along with Thomas, Matthew the publican, and you can picture him rolling his eyes like, yeah, you got to bring that up again, don't you? Yes, yes, I'm the publican, not anymore. Next, James, the son of Alphaeus, in the chosen, this is the one they refer to as little James. Uh, And the scriptures do try to differentiate where where possible the two Jameses that are in the quorum. Next, Labaius, whose surname was Thaddeus. 
And this one's tricky because who is this? Is it Thaddeus? Is it Labaius? Sometimes he's even called Judas the Greater or Judas the Zealot or Judas, quote, not Iscariot, unquote. Yeah, if my, if my name was Judas and I was in the Quorum of the Twelve, I would want everyone to know. I'm not that one, though. I'm a different one, okay? Judas comes from Judah. It's the house of Israel. It's the tribe of Judah, the Jews. So it's a very common name, okay? Then two more. Simon the Canaanite, and Canaanite's a bad translation. Uh, a better translation for that word is a zealot. Uh, and a, again, a zealot is... Zealot in the, in the Hebrew is close to the word for Canaanite, so that's the confusion that the King James translators had. But he's a, a zealot, and then the one that we know also, sadly, for his, uh, he's not just famous, he's infamous, and Judas Iscariot. And then Matthew had to include, he's obviously writing after the fact, he included the phrase, who also betrayed him. Luke added another phrase when he lists them all and mentions Judas Iscariot and calls him the traitor. Yikes. We'll wait to see that uh, for another almost three years. But in the meantime, these are all amazing disciples who want to be with Jesus. Called as incredible apostles sent out by Jesus with the same power and authority that he has to do what he would do. Not all people are close enough to stretch out their faith and touch the hem of Christ's garment. So let me send out people clothed with my authority and power to reach them themselves. In this group, we see brothers, two sets. We see friends, Philip and Bartholomew or Nathaniel. We see opposites. One Simon who was a zealot. I would do anything to destroy Rome. And then you get Matthew who found himself willing to work for Rome and collecting taxes on their behalf from his own people. Those two would have had an interesting time together in the Quorum of the Twelve. Did he make them sit together? Maybe. <laughs> Serve together? Perhaps. In some ways, the Lord needs different backgrounds and different perspectives. If truth is made manifest by proving contraries, then to me it's beautiful that in the original Quorum of the Twelve, there are contraries to be proven people on different sides of the political aisle. And the same is true in the Quorum of the Twelve currently. I'm grateful they're not all just yes-men. These are alpha, alpha dogs, every one of them. They're, they're used to leading things themselves and then put them all together in the same quorum and figure it out. Reach unanimity in ascertaining the will of God. Man, that's a tall order. But I wouldn't trust it to any other group than these faithful diligent disciples that God has called as his apostles. It's a powerful thing. Oh, so Simon, Matthew, figure it out. If we're going to try to set up the kingdom of God in the midst of the Roman Empire and somehow navigate that, I need opposite opinions on this. So speak up and speak your mind and we'll figure it out from there. <laughs> That's exactly what happens. One of the things President Nelson has said, we've, we know we finally reached the will of God when we finally reach unanimity. In fact, when my students have sometimes asked, how do you place faith in fallibility? How do you trust prophets when you know, because they don't, they don't claim, you know they're not infallible because they don't claim to be. That's my answer. Unanimity helps offset fallibility, especially when they're coming from opposite angles on things and needing to come together. 
and they do. It's amazing. Well, what kind of instruction will he give them? This is where the rest of chapter 10 unfolds. Matthew 10, verse 5 and 6, right off the bat, once we know their names, these 12 Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Interesting that even before he tells them where to go, he tells them where not to go. Huh, that seems kind of exclusionary. Well, this is coming from Jesus, who constantly seems to break his own rule and blesses Canaanites and talks to the Samaritan woman and preaches in the Decapolis and heals the, the, a, a demoniac among swine herds. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's Jesus, okay? But for you, let me tell you where we're going to start. It will grow from there. But trust me with your marching orders. Even when I seem to be limiting where it is I want you to serve. Don't worry. This is a, it's a house of order and we will grow from here. But start with the lost sheep of the house of Israel. They are sheep without a shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. You're my under shepherds. Please help the flock. Okay. Then verse 7 and 8. As you go, preach. So everywhere you're headed, keep the mouth open. Look for opportunities to serve. And this is what you'll preach. Saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's right here. I know him. I've, I've seen the good news and the glad tidings up close and personal. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. That's about as quick a summary of the miracles we just saw Jesus perform as you'll get. Heal the sick, oh yeah, centurion servant, leper, uh, man of the palsy, you name it. Cleanse the lepers, oh check that one, did that one too. Raise the dead, oh yes, daughter of Jairus, son of the widow of Nain, cast out devils. How about a legion's worth? Oh, you mean you want us to do what? We thought only you could do? Yes, exactly. And then the Savior explains, freely ye have received, freely give. I, why do you think I set the example for you? Were you not paying attention? I remember when I turned 16, it was my first time to bless the sacrament. I was like, I've been sitting right in front of them for like four years just to pass, pass the sacrament or to, to prepare it. I have no idea what they do. what they do. Why was I not paying attention? Or the first time I was in a bishopric and had to conduct sacrament meeting, I'm like, I've been watching this my whole life. And I feel completely lost on how to do this myself. Just, I've been your mentor. I've been teaching. I've been showing you the kingdom. You have received and you received it freely. Now go out and give and give it freely as well. But now that you mention it, Jesus, there is one thing I'm a little worried about. If we're freely giving and freely receiving, what about the things that aren't exactly free. How are we, how are we going to, to pay our expenses on this mission? Well, look at verse 9 and 10. Provide neither gold nor silver nor brass in your purses. In fact, you won't even need a purse. Nor script for your journey. And a script is some kind of traveling bag. Picture a suitcase. Picture a backpack. Nope, you're not going to need any of that either. There's not going to be anything in it, so you don't need it either. Neither two coats. One will be more than enough. Again, if somebody comes and takes your coat, you were going to give them your cloak anyway. So <laughs> that would be the only reason to give, to have two. So you have two to give away. But no, don't need that. Neither shoes, nor yet staves, 
and you can picture them like, huh, what, seriously? And it's like, you, what's the packing list? And they kind of have it mapped out in their mind. And the Lord keeps crossing things out like, nope, won't need that, won't need that, won't need that. And then he explains, for the workman is worthy of his meat. Wait a minute. So there will be meat? I mean, we're working and we're earning some kind of wage? Well, not the way you're thinking. But meat, you, yes, you have to eat. I get that. Just don't feed yourself. Let other people do it. Learn to trust in the goodness of others because that's what we'll have to appeal to. We're looking for people of faith. We're looking, of pe- looking for people of sacrifice, of goodness and generosity. In some ways, by throwing yourself on their mercy, they will self-identify as the elect, as the ones prepared to receive you. They'll receive because they're willing to give. They're the ones that will feed you. It's a fascinating approach. And in the early days of the church, it was that way too. Go forth as missionaries without purse or script. Don't bring extra money. Don't bring any extra baggage. In fact, the irony there of not needing a purse isn't a purse or a wallet, doesn't that suggest that you've got more money than you're spending and so you kind of just need a place to keep it? And some kind of bag, suitcase, backpack suggests you have stuff that you're not actually wearing or using in the moment, so I just need a place to store it? No, what was the, par- what was the line in the Lord's Prayer? Give us this day, how much? Just our daily bread. That's, I don't need an extra purse or an extra wallet or an extra bag for that. I'm, I'm eating on the go, on the run. Which means tomorrow I'll have to hope that there's more manna outside my tent. But God always seems to come through. There's something about going forth without enough flesh on your arm to place your trust there. That to me is amazing. There's, an, there's something about having the faith to live on less than what's required because what's going to fill in the gap? It's going to have to be the blessings of God. So I'm putting, financially we don't do that much anymore. But maybe that's the reason God sends us out to foreign countries or other areas or a language you don't know or people that you've never talked to and companions you didn't choose because man, it strips away the flesh on your arm. It's, it's interesting that there are still ways that we are living this because we're not fully prepared to do everything that God expects of us. It's fascinating. Keep reading, though, in verse 11 through 13. And into whatsoever city or town ye shall enter, inquire who in it is worthy. I mean, again, you're going to need to know who will self-distinguish as places and people that you can stay or that you can receive from. So inquire who is worthy and there abide till ye go thence. That's where you're going to stay. When you come into an house, salute it. And if the house be worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it be not worthy, let your peace return to you. You're just kind of, I don't know, knocking on a door, giving someone the opportunity to let you know if they're worthy of, their, of your message or not. That sounds a lot like tracting to me, to be honest. And there we are inquiring who is worthy, who is open-minded, who has a humble heart, who is in a preparation to receive the word. And if they are, then abide with them 
You are sending out peace in every direction who will open their door to receive it versus who slams the door and that peace bounces right back to us. Now there's a more bold way of doing that in the next two verses, 14 and 15. Whosoever shall not receive you nor hear your words, when ye depart out of that house or city, shake off the dust of your feet. Luke adds that that would be a testimony against them. And then back to Matthew. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Wow, this is serious business. I wouldn't suggest that we take this literally uh, in terms of passing some sort of final judgment like, okay, it's on you and look out for fire and brimstone from heaven. Hope you meet your, your neighbors from Sodom and Gomorrah someday. No, that's not judgment we pass. But in terms of shaking off the dust of our feet, metaphorically, to suggest that I have done, this is in some ways what Jacob does in the Book of Mormon, where he shakes his garments before the people, saying, I am now clean of your blood, because I've done my work. This is back to the book of Ezekiel, that as long as the watchman on the tower raises the warning voice, then the ball's in the court of his hearers. Will you do something about it? Will you take my message seriously? Otherwise, I'm not responsible. I did what I was asked to do. So to shake the garments, to wash the hands, we'll see Pilate do that in the wrong way later. But here to, in some ways, I have to wash my feet of you because we w you wouldn't let us in to wash your feet of the earthly dirt that is contaminating you. So I, I can have nothing to do. I need to be free from the blood and sins of this generation. Or in this case, the dirt that I've picked up in my wanderings through the wicked world. Now in verse 16, the Lord sums it all up to this point. Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Uh, wait a minute, I thought we were going to be the under-shepherds. Well, yeah, you are. Wolves don't like shepherds either. But they certainly prey on the sheep, and it will feel like they're preying on you. But that's, that's what I'm sending you out to do. You'll be persecuted. Prepare. Be therefore, and this is a famous phrase, wise as serpents and harmless as doves. What an interesting contrary to prove. You see, if we're only wise as serpents, that wisdom might tend toward manipulation. Meanwhile, if we're only harmless as doves, that harmlessness might inch towards naivete. But if we can combine the two, and that's what contraries are, this paradox that somehow we force these two to coexist, and I'm going to be as wise as a serpent. I'm going to be sophisticated, trying to think of creative ways to slither into places that I don't seem to be able to enter. Can we do that through social media? Can we do it through Facebook? How are we going to preach the gospel during COVID? What are we going to do to get into this gated community or to cross borders of countries that don't want us in yet? How? To see the, the, the entry of the gospel into beyond the Iron Curtain or into the Soviet, former Soviet Union. The, the, the apostles themselves had to be wise as serpents. But through the entire process, they were harmless as doves. They were extending the olive leaf, symbols of peace, as representatives of the Prince of Peace. That's, that's hard to do. It's tough. 
And I remember teaching one sweet lady on my mission who was on fire, recent convert, loved the gospel. Her husband, she just didn't have the patience for her husband to come along at his pace. And she was constantly cracking the spiritual whip, like, come on, why haven't you joined the church yet, honey? And he's like, I just don't understand the Book of Mormon yet. And she's like, Why, who cares? Just, it's true, dang it. Just join the church. And he was the type that I have to understand everything. And when we met him and her, we realized he was more open to the possibility than we thought. But in some ways, in her overzealousness, she was scaring him off rather than inviting him in. So realizing that one of her worst enemies was herself, she just didn't realize it. We actually asked, hey, sister, can we come over on a, on a P-Day or sometime? And, or, or we study the missionary guide, how to be missionaries. We do it like every day. Can we do it with you one of these days? Wouldn't that be cool? And you, you're a convert. You didn't get to go on a mission. You never went to the MTC. You want to you learn the method to the madness, how we are missionaries? And she's all, that would be amazing. We're like, good, because you need it. Then we went and we taught her some missionary principles about how to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And her comment was so hilarious as we're explaining things like, you know, we need to be patient with people when they have questions. I mean, we're thinking about her husband. We didn't say it, but we hoped that she figured it out along the way. Uh, that sometimes we just need to let them go at their own pace and, and this and that. We, it was amazing. And at one point she just looked at us and said, ser misionero, hay que ser suave. <laughs> In other words, to be a missionary, you've got to be smooth. I don't know if I'd ever been called suave before. But to be a smooth missionary, not smooth in terms of slippery and oily and trying to sneak our way in, no, but smooth like a wise serpent and yet a harmless dove. Yes, we need to be simple but sophisticated. <laughs> wise and innocent, we need to prove that set of contraries. And the apostles more than anybody have to do just that. The next few verses, he says, But beware of men, and by beware, it's be careful. Here is another contrary. You've got to be trusting, but don't be gullible. Okay, It's like the JST of Matthew chapter 7 be about judging. Judge not unrighteously, but do judge righteous judgment. You're going to have to do that. So beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils. They will scourge you in their synagogues. You shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake. Whoa, you picture a bunch of poor fishermen, uh, people that have never left the land around the Sea of Galilee, except maybe for a trip down to Jerusalem every so often for feast days and festivals. And whoa, I'm going to go face governors and kings. I'm way out of my depth. Uh, don't worry. He goes on, do that for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what you shall speak. For it shall be given you in that same hour what ye shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. Now honestly, of all the blessings, promises that God makes to his servants, that's the one I doubted most before my mission and believed most strongly by the time I was done. The take no thought beforehand, the open your mouth and it shall be filled. Because that happened to me on my mission so many times where people would ask me a question I'd never heard of before. And it was like, here goes nothing. And I opened my mouth and find myself saying things I didn't know. But it was exactly what the person needed to hear. 
And that, without that, I would not have had the courage to go to Q&A in other church congregations. I don't know. Open my mouth. I, the only thing it gets filled with is my foot. No, I'd had enough experiences to know that that's the case. Uh, it's a promise that he makes throughout the dispensations. How about this version in Doctrine and Covenants 84, 85? Neither take ye thought beforehand what ye shall say, but treasure up in your minds continually the words of life. And it shall be given you in the very hour that portion that shall be meted unto every man. So it's not just, oh, don't think about it. Remember when we talked about this at the end of, uh, what was it, Matthew chapter 6? Of take no thought and take no thought and take no thought. It kept getting repeated. But the idea there was don't overthink it. Don't get over anxious. Don't worry about things. Prepare, yes, but don't freak out about it. And you get that sense in this Doctrine and Covenants version. It's not just don't think about what you're going to say. It's don't stress about it. Because if you've already treasured up continually the words of life, it's in there somewhere. You've done your homework. You've given the Lord something to draw out of you. And that's typically the case. So take no thought. Well, don't overthink. But you've followed me. Have you been paying attention? Have you been learning the good news? So you can go out and do what I have done. After all, if you overthink it, chances are the words you say will be your words. And what those people need to hear, whether it's in the council or the synagogue or the kings or the governors themselves, they need to know what God would have them hear. And for that, <laughs> it's not your prior preparation. It's your worthiness to receive the revelation and inspiration of God. My dad was a patriarch, and often he'd say, it's sometimes even harder to give patriarchal blessings to people you know, because you think you know them well enough to know what they need to hear. Whereas a perfect stranger coming in, it's like, okay, I got nothing. So what is going to be given them, it's not going to be me that speaks. It's going to be the spirit of my father that speaketh in me. Because only God knows them. I don't. Well, we better get around ourselves somehow. We better get over ourselves and past ourselves and through ourselves so that God can speak through us. And we know that it's, this is a message that God would have you hear because I didn't know what I was going to say to you. That's powerful. He then says in verse 21 to 23, And the brother shall deliver up the brother to death, and the father, the child, and the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. This is, sounds scary. Brother to brother, parent to child, are you serious? This is the complete disintegration of social ties, a tearing up of the fabric of the family. It sounds a little like modern times, to be honest. And it's only the gospel of Jesus Christ that can fix things. So what does he say? You shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. Don't forget that beatitude that mentions something similar, right? You're in good company, so persecuted they, the prophets that were before you. Yes, you'll be hated. But he that endureth to the end shall be saved. When they persecute you in this city, flee ye into another. For verily I say unto you, ye shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man be come. And what he means by that is, don't just sit around and wait for everything to change. Move on to the next spot. Because you're barely going to have enough time to cover everybody or everywhere the first go around before the Son of Man, before that timing has come. You get the sense of urgency here in terms of missionary work. 
of spreading the gospel because the clock is ticking. And the longer we procrastinate, the worse the world gets. We want the Savior to come and come quickly. So let's get moving. And if you're persecuted or cast out one spot, fine, go somewhere else. In fact, stronger word, flee somewhere else. Oh, sounds like somebody's chasing me. Yeah, you think? Keep going. Can you imagine as this is dawning on the apostles, like what did we sign up for? Are you serious? We just kind of wanted to follow you around and watch you do all this amazing stuff, not us to do it. We were scared enough of the persecution you were facing, but for us to face it too? Can I do this? Am I ready? Now, in some ways, why would we think it would be easy for us when it was anything but easy for Jesus? So in verse 24 and 25, the disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master and the servant as his Lord. And that kind of, is kind of includes some rough stuff. He said, if they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household? If Jesus has been called all kinds of things, if he's rejected, persecuted, if he's going to end up being crucified, then who do we think we are to think that we're above that? It's fascinating how early on in the Doctrine and Covenants, as early as section 5, if I remember correctly, the Lord says to Joseph Smith, Hey, Joseph, don't worry about what kinds of persecution you'll face because they can't do anything worse to you than what they did to me. And I picture poor Joseph going, they killed you. What, what do you mean they can't do anything worse to me? Is that supposed to make me feel better? And the Lord like, well, yeah, yeah, they did kill me, but I, I, I'm, I got better. <laughs> I was resurrected. You will be too. Just follow. Wow. Follow anywhere. Okay, this is what I signed up for. As someone once asked Elder Holland, how come apostles today don't, don't give their lives for the, for the gospel like they did in the ancient world? And what they meant was, why aren't they killed? But the way they said it, why don't you give your lives? And Elder Holland's response, I thought that's what I was doing. That's exactly what they're doing. The only way out of the apostleship is death. <laughs> I'll talk about enduring to the end. Talk about not being above their master. And if Christ will teach, preach, heal to the bitter end, then so will they. It's amazing. He then goes on and says, verse 26 and 27, Fear them not, therefore, for there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, and hid that shall not be known. What I tell you in darkness, that speak ye in light, and what ye hear in the ear, that preach ye upon the housetops. Oh, I'll be whispering in your ear. Go shout it <laughs> from the mountaintop. Spread the word. What you see in me, then show to others. What I tell you behind closed doors, go let those truths find the light of day. There's work to be done. In verse 28 through 31, Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. But rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Again, this is, this is like that, those Joseph Smith lines, like, I'm not sure how reassuring this is. What, are, what am I signing up for? Well, you're signing up to follow me wherever that leads. Jesus goes on, Art not two sparrows sold for a farthing, and one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father? 
Oh, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear ye not, therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. Yes, it's going to get that bad for you. And if you read books like Fox's Book of Martyrs, you read the stories of the, the martyrdoms of these incredible men with beheadings and boiling oil and crucifixion upside down. Read the book of Hebrews chapter 11 and you see some sawn asunder. I mean, it's intense what people endure because of their faith in Jesus. But it's faith in Jesus that they had and propelled them forward. They knew that he valued them more than many sparrows. So whether in life or in death, I will bring people to Christ. On my own mission, I had just been called by my president to serve alongside him, and it was our very first set of zone conferences uh, serving in the office. I was so overwhelmed, I had no idea what I was doing. And in the middle of zone conference, we had four different, we had I think 12 zones, and three of them would come together, and we'd have four different zone conferences around the island. And this was the very first one, first time I'd ever been part of this leadership team. And right in the middle of it, my mission president got a frantic phone call that and one of the newer missionaries on the south side of the island had just been killed in a car accident. And his companion was, had no idea what to do. And I just remember being called into some outside classroom as the rest of the zone conference was going on. And my mission president and the other assistant and myself, and we're just powwowing, like, what do we do? And I'm like, I don't know how to do anything. And my mission president turned to my senior companion, the other assistant, and said, come with me. We're driving there right now to try to figure out what we, what we should do. And then he turned to me and said, Elder Halverson, take care of the rest of Zone Conference. And I'm like, si, Presidente. And I'm inside, I'm like, what? I have... And then the mission president came in, explained to all those three zones assembled what had just happened, and then jumped in the car with my companion and took off. And three zones worth of shell-shocked missionaries, known, know, knowing that one of their partners in arms had just died in the mission field, and now I'm in charge of the meeting. I had no idea what else to do. So I just said to the other elders and sisters, we are going to have a testimony meeting and end our zone conference from there. Well, I was blown away by that testimony meeting. None of the missionaries there actually knew the elder who'd been killed in the car accident because he was a greenie and hadn't been transferred around to other zones. I had met him on a trade-off about a week or two earlier and was so impressed by his, how his excitement, his passion, his urgency, he was going to be an incredible missionary. Actually, he already was. And it was amazing to me to see, just with the announcement of his passing, the effect it had on missionaries that never knew him. As they realized that this mission was not a rite, let alone a mere rite of passage, it was a privilege, it was a gift, and one that could be taken at any instant. And that set of missionaries promised, I'm going to be different I want to sew up my bag. I want to 
I don't, I don't want to go through the motions. I want to make every minute count of my mission. After that conference ended and I caught back up with my companion and my mission president, I explained what had happened and how powerful it was. And then the next set of zone conferences that we had, which was in the area where this missionary had died, and so everybody knew him, we had a similar experience with another round of testimony meetings. We went to the third set of zone conferences and did the same thing, and the fourth and did the same thing. And I felt by the time it was done, and I'd heard the missionaries all across our island infused with zeal to preach the gospel with all the power and conviction they could because of the sacrifice of this missionary. I ended up writing a letter to his parents and explained to them, I'm the only missionary in this mission that got to hear the testimonies of the entire island. Because my mission president and companion went to the other three but weren't there for the, four, the first, I just felt like I needed to tell you, mother and father, that if a missionary's purpose is to bring souls unto Christ, then not only did your son do that in the brief time he preached the gospel in Puerto Rico, but he did it in the moment of his passing. That in both life and in death, he brought souls unto Christ. And by bringing missionaries unto Christ, with a renewed zeal to go out and make a difference in the lives of those around us, your son's sacrifice was profound and will be profoundly influential. I felt the need to testify of that, having heard all those testimonies. And I knew and still know it was true. To think about what these apostles are realizing. Not a hair of my head. Worth many sparrows. Whom the Lord calls, he qualifies. God expects great things of me, but where much is expected, much is required, much is also given. Reverse that, the order of that verse. And God will be with me. He was and is. The Lord goes on and says in verse 32, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. Sounds a lot like that earlier warning at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. I never knew you, and you never knew me. You didn't confess me, I can't confess you. You denied me, I must deny you. There's no relationship here, there's no covenant and why, wouldn't, why would we act like we didn't know him? Notice this from the Luke version of all of this. This is Luke 9.26. For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. That's stronger language. It's shame. And is that what is, that what is keeping us from bearing witness of Jesus Christ? Is it shame? Is it fear of what people will think? Oh, the Lord is trying to wean us off the, the arm of flesh and the fear of other flesh. How does Paul say it? I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation. What's there to be ashamed of? What's there to fear? In verse 34 through 36, Jesus says, Think not that I am come to send peace on the earth. Now, that's shocking. Wait wait a minute. I thought you were the Prince of Peace. I thought that's what you were coming to bring. Well, eventually, yes. 
In the long term, yes. But in the short term, no. He says, I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Yes, a man's foes shall be they of his own household. How's that for the stark demands of discipleship? Variance in your own household? I guess in some ways the question is, to whom will you be most loyal? President Hinckley talked about the loneliness of leadership. And to find your companionship in Christ, no matter what kind of social fallout there is for following him. In verse 37 through 39, Jesus goes on, He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. This repetition of more than me, you see, it's all about comparison. It's, it's all relative. Where, where are our priorities? Who do we love most? Jesus goes on, he that taketh not his cross. And how's that for a word with incredible foreshadowing? If you don't take your cross and follow after me, you're not worthy of me. And then this powerful summary of what he's been teaching so far. He that findeth his life shall lose it. And he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. So in a phrase, my dear brethren, my 12 apostles, go get lost and you'll find yourself. You'll find life eternal. You'll find life in its abundance. Even if it's short, cut short by persecution, you'll find eternal life on the other side. Lose yourself in service to others. I actually love that phrase. If you want to find your life, then lose it. I haven't thought about making t-shirts at one point that just say, get lost. And if people were offended by that, then I could explain what it means. <laughs> Go lose yourself in order to truly find yourself. In fact, that was in the back of my mind one year when my wife and kids and I were going to a family reunion at a time when almost all of my siblings had young children, same with mine, and a bunch of babies and toddlers under the same roof and realizing, oh no, if one baby wakes up in the middle of the night, it's going to go dominoes. And there's going to be a crying baby in every bedroom. And every family is going to be exhausted by the next morning. This, this, could be, this could be a disaster of a family reunion. But again, because I'd been thinking, pondering about this concept of getting lost, I made that my own personal motto for the family reunion. I, said, I don't even think my family knows about this. But I told my wife, okay, here's our plan. It's get lost week. And if somebody needs some extra help, if, if one of the nephews or nieces needs supervision so that the parents can go out and have some fun, then that's us. Because we're going to lose ourselves. Otherwise, we'll lose our minds. <laughs> and there were times during that year's family reunion where I remember a couple times my wife would say, oh, you know what? So-and-so could really use your help. And are you, are you okay? And she was like tiptoeing on the invitation. I'm like, of course I'm going to do that because I'm lost and I'm about to get lost. So see ya. And I'd go, and honestly, it was one of the best family reunions I've ever been on because it was never about me. And in losing myself in service, I found such a better experience than I otherwise would. What makes discipleship, 
oh, less than what it could be, is we're too focused on ourselves. And if we'll just lose ourselves in service to others, you'll be amazed at who you find in the mirror when all is said and done. It's beautiful. A few last verses. 40 and 41. He that receiveth you receiveth me. And he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. Sounds a lot like the oath and covenant of the priesthood in the Doctrine and Covenant section 84. You receive my servants, you receive me. You receive me, you receive my Father. Receive my Father, receive all that the Father hath. That's what he wants to give to you. Oh, no purse nor script. Because no purse can contain the riches of eternity I'm trying to give you. No script can hold the blessings of God I'm trying to pour out as I open the windows of heaven. Just come and serve. And those that receive you will receive me and all that the Father and the Son have to offer. And then he says something that has always confused me until, well, until I thought about it long enough for it to actually make sense. And once it makes sense, it's a powerful insight. Verse 41, he that receiveth a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. He's been talking about receiving. Are you receiving me? Are you receiving the Father? Well, how are you receiving prophets? If you receive them in the name of a prophet, you'll receive a prophet's reward. Meanwhile, here's another alternative. He that receiveth a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. Now, like I said, I had no idea what that meant the first, I don't know, 30, 40 years I read that. What? You just, okay, receive a prophet. Like a prophet. Is prophet's reward. And then it hit me. How do you view servants of God? When you look at the first presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve, or back to Jesus' day, when you see Simon, what do you see? A fisherman or a fisher of men? What do you see when you look at Matthew? A tax collector? Or someone who is collecting, gathering souls? What do you see? In our day, are they just nice old men? Or are they prophets and apostles? Prophets, seers, and revelators. Because the two choices here, is this a prophet or merely a righteous man? How we perceive them and how we accept them will determine the kinds of blessings that flow when we follow them. If they're just nice old men, then what is a nice old man's reward? If I accept a nice old man in the name of a nice old man, then I'll get a, whatever a nice old man can give me. A little pat on the head, a Werther's original, I don't know. <laughs> Meanwhile, if they're prophets, and I accept them as prophets with that title in the name of a prophet, what kind of reward comes for following prophets of God? Oh, now we're back to the oath and covenant. I receive them. I'm receiving the Son. I'm receiving the Father. I'm receiving all the Father has. Whoa. My perception of these servants of God makes all the difference. What is the church? Is it just some kind of mortal social organization? Or is it the kingdom of God upon the earth? What is discipleship? Is it just doing a good deed daily? Or is it life in Christ and self-sacrifice to bring souls unto Him? What, what's the quorum of the Twelve? 
is this a board of directors trying to navigate social currents and figure out how our organization is supposed to go? Or are they prophets, seers, and revelators with the power and authority of Christ? What are we doing here, my friends? Seriously, is this ancient literature we've been studying or is this the word of Almighty God? Are we oh, passing time? Or are we preparing the earth for the second coming of Christ? How you perceive these apostles will determine everything in terms of whether or not you follow them and what kind of reward you will or will not receive. I'm fascinated by that verse. It is powerful. Again, it makes me wonder, what's my perception? Now, even if you can't accept all that, if you're still torn between prophets of God or righteous men, then the Lord's final verse here, verse 42, is interesting. Can, can you at least accept their discipleship and what they're trying to accomplish, even if you don't give them the authority that the Lord has, or at least honor that authority? Because notice this, verse 42, Whosoever shall give to drink unto one of these little ones a cup of cold water only in the name of a disciple, oh, verily I say unto you, he shall in no wise lose his reward. In God's incredible generosity, he's even offering rewards for those that don't totally see Who's before them? Oh, just some little one. The least of these. Thirsty. I don't know why they didn't have the clue to bring person script and stuff to eat and stuff to drink. Why are they asking me for it? Well, because I'm trying to find the worthy and the righteous. Is that you? I'm trying to see those that will honor discipleship with discipleship of their own that will recognize needs and have a soft enough heart, heart to want to meet them, even just a drink of water. And God will reward you abundantly with living water of his own. That's what I've been trying to offer you. A well springing up into everlasting life. If you don't recognize that, that's okay. I won't force feed you living water. But can you give me a temporal cup out of which to drink? I loved those experiences in the mission field, just relying on the goodness of people. And typically, even those that didn't want to hear my message were more than happy to offer me a cup of water. I'm grateful for that. As we conclude this week's lesson, can we just rush back to Luke chapter 9 for just a few afterthoughts? Because when all is said and done, and these apostles have received these marching orders, in Luke's version of it all, Luke chapter 9, verse 6, they departed and went through the towns, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So teaching, preaching, healing for them too. Everywhere the apostles preach, they heal. Everywhere they heal, they preach. It's all the same to them. And then later in that same chapter, chapter 9 of Luke, we find Luke's version of what we saw last week elsewhere about foxes having holes and birds having nests, but the Son of Man not having where to lay his head. I guess that was two weeks ago. We see Luke's version of the dead burying the dead. And then of those two examples of discipleship, that great self-sacrifice, we then find a third. And in Luke chapter 9, verse 61 and 62, we read, 
And another also said, Lord, I will follow thee. But let me first go bid them farewell, which are at home at my house. Now, remember, Jesus was pretty stark about, oh, you want to be homeless, then come follow me. Okay, let the, let the dead bury their dead. Just follow me. What's he going to say to this person that all they want to do is go back and say goodbye? Oh, do you not understand the demands of discipleship? Jesus said unto him, No man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Wow. Priorities indeed. Putting God first above all other things. Seeking first the kingdom, trusting that everything else will be added unto you. To understand what the Lord expects of those that he calls, it makes me all the more amazed. Not just in the goodness of God in calling prophets and apostles, but the goodness of mere mortals to accept that call to begin with. I've shared before the story of Richard G. Scott when he was working for the U.S. Navy on trying to create a nuclear navy for the United States military. And when he was called to be a mission president in South America, and he went to the admiral of the navy, who was famous for being tough as nails, and said, I'm going to have to leave the navy for three years to go serve as a mission president for my church. The admiral was so angry, he accused young Richard Scott of being a traitor to his country. The Soviets are going to catch up and pass us if you leave. It was like the whole weight of the Cold War was on Richard Scott's, Rick Scott's shoulders. Admiral, the Admiral even said to him, if this is what Mormons do, then I don't want any Mormons in the Navy. If you leave, you're never coming back. You'll never get another job in this field. In fact, get rid of the rest of the people in your church if they'll put God above country. Wow. Now he's really starting to worry. Are other people going to be put in in a bad place because I'm going to go on this mission. And yet in the midst of it all, a hymn popped into his head. Do what is right. Let the consequence follow. So he did. He trained his successor as quickly as he could. And then he called the admiral's secretary and said, I need to go see the admiral. And, and the secretary said, he's not going to see you. Why do you think he's been working through a middleman all this time through the transition? He doesn't want to talk to you. He's ticked. Well, tell him I'm coming. <laughs> and Richard G. Scott tucked a Book of Mormon under his arm and went to the admiral's office, uninvited. Went in and said, Admiral, I know you're angry. I just need you to know why I'm doing this. And he gave him a copy of the Book of Mormon and bore his testimony of its truth. By the end of the conversation, this hard-nosed military man said, Okay, Scott, I'll read your book while you're gone. And in fact, by the time you get back, come see me. There'll be a job for you. We need you. What amazes me about that story is this is not some 75-year-old apostle. In that moment, this was a 37-year-old stake clerk but someone the Lord had called and was qualifying. Someone the Lord knew had more important things to do and was preparing him. To see what we see in Matthew chapter 10 and realize that there are prophets, seers, and revelators in our day that read that chapter and see themselves in it in ways that you and I never will. 
Indeed, we thank thee, O God, for a prophet. And if we simply have the faith in God to know that he has faith in them, then we'll have the faith to follow as well.